Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio. This is the episode we've been hyping up for quite a while now. It's uh, it's another installment of the Chondro Roundtable. Um, and for me, uh, this is an episode that uh, originally I tracked down Harlan to talk about, um, and uh, it turned into uh, into uh, into a roundtable. But the idea of uh, herpticulture and where we're at right now, and uh, you know all these different things. When I when I take a different perspective and look back and look from the because uh, I've been listening to that Chameleon Breeders podcast. Uh, if you haven't mm-hmm. heard that, it's pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, man, they are pretty intense when it comes to nutrition and diet and all these different things and UV. And I just, I don't know. I, I start to think like, are we just sort of at a lull or uh, are we stalling in our snake keeping because what we do works. And when we have problems, we sort of just brush them off and, um, you know, don't really push it forward because everybody's so concerned about whether it be morphs or, you know, uh, whatever, having the, the being the first to breed uh, the species or, you know, all these different things that have sort of uh, crept into the snake world that sort of makes it what it is. But um, I don't know. Uh, Chondros, uh, as you know, Owen and I have both talked about in the past about how, you know, they've been tricky uh, for us, you know, I know for, I can speak for myself that I figured, well, how can they be different? And they're a little more sensitive than carpet pythons. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I should say a lot more sensitive in my opinion, because carpet pythons are freaking bulletproof, but they seem Chondros, to live through everything. So. <laughs> Chondros, not so much. So anyway, tonight, uh, the idea of the show was uh, thinking outside the box, trying to push it forward, trying to, uh, you know, think of different ideas. And by, I, I'm just going to put a disclaimer at the beginning of the show that at no way does this mean that tomorrow that you should, you know, uh, <laughs> change the way that you're keeping or anything like that. But right. if you have, uh, you know, uh, if you want to, if you think that you see something in your animals and, um, for whatever reason, they're not um, as healthy healthy as you think you, that they should be, then perhaps uh, maybe you should look at the diet. You know, the idea, we say it all the time that they're just ambush predators and, you know, they just wait for something to come along. But uh, that means that sometimes there's a, there's a variety in their diet. And, you know, uh, also you have to think about, go ahead. It's something to think about where <clears throat> obviously we don't want you guys to go home and immediately start doing drastic changes to your collection because a lot of times snakes don't take too kindly to, you know, you walking in and being like, we're going to do the ambient room temp method and then everything like the No, it, but if you want to gradually maybe work something in, like say you've had a project where you've had an animal stall out slugs every year or, uh, something like that. Maybe this is some, another angle you can approach to try to correct the problem. The 
whole point of these episodes is to make you people think, God damn it. Well, so, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the, you know, I think back. So here's, here's a perspective. I mean, I think back when the book, The Reproductive Husbandry of Pythons and Boas uh, by Ross and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Marzak. Um, when yeah. that came out, I mean, that was like pushing the python keeping and breeding to, a, you know, to a whole new level. And it seems to have just kind of stalled there. Um, you know, um, I, I'm, I think that, you know, genetics and whatnot are fascinating. And, and then I look at, uh, you know, ball pythons and how they pushed us uh, farther and farther advanced into genetics um, than uh, probably than any other species, I would think. Maybe corn snakes maybe come close, yeah. but they're not pythons. So, but um, <laughs> I just no, – <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it uh, would be a cool, cool uh, show, and uh, we got we got an awesome lineup. Unfortunately, uh, Bill can't be with us, which is uh, so half of GTP Keeper Radio will be gone. But we still have Buddy Buscemi will be joining us. We have Harlan Wall. Um, we have uh, Ian Bissell, and uh, I'm pretty excited about having uh, Nick. Um, uh, Nick from Reptilinks because he's going to be able to think, I think give us a perspective that, um, you know, again, I say about that variety and that's, you know, what about supplementation? What about UV? What about, uh, you know, water? I mean, things that we take for granted is just basic one oh one. Um, I think the idea is, is that we're going to try to uh, put some ideas out there and try to get everybody thinking, just like Owen said, everybody trying to, uh, to think about what they're doing and not just, it's not a recipe. We're not making a cake people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there, there are so many ways to skin these, like to do things that find out what works best for you. So adding this to a certain project may help you get over the hump with breeding them or have stronger babies, or maybe you have babies that maybe you lose one or two a year. Maybe this is something you might want to think about. I mean, uh, when I and I was talking about this with Ian earlier this week. Um, when I first started, I had like four carpet pythons, and they were all uh-huh. fuzzies. And I supplemented all their food with calcium and vitamin powder, and I still supplement all the baby monitors with calcium and vitamin powder. But I don't do that for the baby snakes anymore. And I couldn't think of a good reason of why I stopped, other than I don't know. I had so many after a certain point, and I really it was whatever. So it's like, I don't, was, was that helping? Was it not helping? I don't know. So maybe yeah. I'll start up again. We'll see. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and sometimes I think, you know, we're going to hit things that uh, we thought might work and they don't, you know, um, yep. but uh, I just, you know, I, I, I just think of, uh, I don't know when you look at people, you know, and you look at, yeah, I mean, when me and Ian were talking um, a few weeks ago, one of the things, because we both work in the food industry, but in in different ways, um, but, you know, what you put into your body, you know, makes you run, optim- it optimizes you, or it can really screw you up. So yeah. my idea is, is that, yes, you know, it's just like if um, if we were, you know, 
I don't know, stranded on an island and had to eat coconuts forever and, and shrimp, I guess, yeah, we would survive. But would we be optimized for performance? Would we, would we be as healthy as we could be? I don't think so. You know what I mean? And that's kind yeah. of the idea, you know? Um, and by feeding, you know, the other thing that people don't think about a lot is um, what is your, the, whatever you're feeding your snake, do you know what that, that is eating? You know what I mean? Because yeah, you are what you eat type of deal. So if you're just, uh, you know, willy nilly, um, uh, buying rodents and stuff and you don't have a rodent breeder or I mean, best case scenario, which uh, obviously me and Owen and a lot of people know that you can't always produce your own rodents, although that would be the best thing. Um, but, uh, you can't, you can't always do that, but at least buy from somebody that, you know, um, uh, Oh, sorry. We're already having technical difficulties. Already, but, already. <laughs> if uh, <clears throat> at least uh, you know, buy from somebody that you know that they're feeding them healthy and whatnot. Um, right. Hold from, on. Go ahead, Owen. Well, buy from somebody who you're gonna. I mean, there there are certain breeders. Some people even let you come out and check out where they breed or pick up animals in certain places. Um, the problem is, is that like there's always somebody and their brother who's trying to sell rodents at a reptile show. So if you're big into this, and I'm saying like you have multiple animals and you have to have a big, you know, uh, food order, then maybe take the time to go and do your research and talk to the other breeders in your area, see who people buy from. I mean, I get my rodents from the same guy that Buddy Buscemi gets his rodents that uh, a lot of the other guys in the area get theirs from. And I've actually been out to his breeding facility and he keeps it nice. It's a farm out in Lancaster. So it's pretty cool. So I'll go with him. I get good prices. I haven't had any problems with any of the rodents he's ever sold me. So I'll stick with him and you can totally do that kind of stuff. It's nothing wrong with doing a little bit of research. So we'll see how that, yeah, absolutely. what works for you. So, so but, what do you, oh, go ahead. I don't know. I guess we wanted to talk a little bit about the U.S. art stuff and then kind of roll yeah. in or what were you going to bring up? Yeah, no, hit on that. I got to touch Damn, people's good. names on these numbers so that I know who everybody is and then we'll get oh, rolling. Good. We're okay. not just like, we're not just shooting in the dark. All right. Yeah, we can probably do that. So, um, so what we got uh, earlier this week was apparently the lawsuit update for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the U.S. ARC. Um, it's ju- I think it's like it's not just that the appeals court was won, um, but the term that is a matter of law that the Lacey Act does not prohibit transportation and commerce of the species listed in the Injurious Species Act. Um, so I guess that it means that we can start shipping stuff across state lines again. Um, incorrect. Which is incorrect. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> All right. Uh, what the hell does I it think, mean? So I think from what I heard is, yeah. and how I understand it um, in my limited uh, uh, understanding of law, it's basically that they took retics and the green anaconda off of the Lacey Act. Holy um, shit. 
as far as the other stuff goes, the berms and the well, yellow. the other stuff it was <laughs> Afrox and all that stuff. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I think I think that they're pulling that all off, but they have all to right. go for another uh, court in order okay. to uh, till it's a hundred percent. So until US Arc says you can We're ship, good. don't do it. Then don't do it yet. <laughs> don't do it yet. But it's a huge step in the right direction to removing those animals from the Lacey Act so that we can begin to produce and sell and uh, keep the animals again without having to worry about that kind of stuff, which is awesome. So um, definitely uh, kudos and good work to U.S. Arc for, you know, fighting the fight and sticking it up. So. Yeah, I mean, that's been a long, long, long battle. And uh, I'm glad that uh, USR got the victory. Um, I would hope that uh, people will still be responsible when it comes to, to those big no, snakes oh, and stuff. Of course not. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I love how it's like it's been semi announced and people are already like, I'm going to sell my retake and send it to New Jersey. I'm like, Stop! <laughs> it's like it, it, it. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. My hope is that by getting this close and having this big of a scare, people will begin to take these things more serious. But the reality that is setting in is that it most likely will be completely the same. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so there. Uh, but that's good news. So. I guess for all those uh, people that uh, I wonder how it's going to affect in Florida. Do you think that they're still going to, I mean, that is well, the main spot, right? <laughs> my my understanding is that it becomes a more, it doesn't, it doesn't prohibit states from outlawing or outruling or, uh, or outlawing or prohibiting uh, the keeping of species in the state, which is where this issue should have been completely. If Florida has a problem with pythons, they should deal with it in Florida. Of course, that's my thinking. If you live in Florida, I apologize, and it sucks to be you. But if you're in an area where the pythons could potentially, you know, even if you want to go county to county, if a county decides they want to outlaw outlaw pythons, they're well within their right to do so. And it's up to us to challenge and try to, get them to see our side and not do it. So from my understanding, like I said, it's going to be a state to state thing, which of course probably means everybody who's in the Southern part of the country, get ready for a fight because I would imagine places like Florida, Louisiana, maybe even Texas might even start weighing in on the outlawing of species of different species and stuff like that. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay, so that's enough of that. We're ready. Yeah, I guess we're ready. Um, one thing uh, at some point, hopefully, I got a, I got some passages. I'm not reading from the Bible. Don't worry, Owen. Oh, thanks, God. <laughs> you better lose have, a co-host. I have no. a book, uh, no. and I no. would highly recommend this book. Um, it's What's the book? Uh, so if you remember uh, from ICAS, uh, Harvey yeah. Lillywhite. If you remember I, him. I don't remember most of ICAST, and that was okay. my fault. So 
and he gave the a fact talk. That I had rum at my table, so he gave a talk about um, uh, snakes. Uh, well, a lot of his he was talking about snakes in in arboreal um, arboreal snakes and such, but um, uh, he wrote a book and it was called How Snakes Work: uh, okay. Structure, Function, and Behavior of the World Snakes, and. I mean, this book has so much information um, when it comes to um, snakes and how they work as a as a as a as a species or as an animal. Um, that uh, I don't know. I just it's a really really good read. Um, it's very well done, uh, and I would just recommend that if you don't have a copy of this. Uh, I mean, it covers every type of snake that you can think of and how they work. Um, so I got some stuff. When we get to water and stuff, I have I have some mm-hmm. uh, some things to that we can just read off so people can nerd out, I guess, in a way. But anyway, uh, let's introduce the guys and let's get this going and let's get into the uh, discussion. So I guess I'll click them uh, in the order and they can give a quick intro. Um, and, uh, then we'll get going and Owen, me and you will just flip back and forth with the questions. Okay. Love it. Okay. <laughs> right, we know what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. First we got Harlan. Harlan. Hey, hey. Hey, you got me? Welcome back. Yeah. We gotcha. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm excited. This is going to be a fun one. It's good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, for Harlan, for people, so I can already see the board is like lit up like crazy. So there's a lot of people that have called in and listened. Um, so maybe oh. just for people that are just tuning in, give a quick introduction of yourself and, you know, what you do, with, your experience with reptiles. Cool. So uh, my name is Harlan Wall, and I own Wall to Wall Reptiles. It's uh, a business that uh, I started out as that that crazy hobbyist, uh, and it morphed into business uh, uh, years ago, well, in 96. So it's been a full-time business since 96, and, um, you know, and a a crazy outlandish hobby before that. Um, And it helped pay my way through college. Uh, I studied at Colorado Mesa University under Dr. Stephen Worman, studying herpetology. And, uh, you know, I I do what I love, and I love what I do, and and I just want to share with other people. And you know, that's why we're here. Very cool. So, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've worked for, with you know a, a slew of different things, from from dart frogs and venomous uh, snakes to colubrids and, and pythons and boas, and uh, I, you know I like it all. But predominantly right now, I'm working with uh, green tree pythons and emeralds, amazons, and some blood pythons and some ball pythons. Now, pretty pretty much, it's more green tree pythons and and uh, emeralds are the big focus for me. Okay. Awesome. All right. We all know the next guy. Uh, <laughs> welcome, buddy. How you doing? <laughs> what are you there? You out there, buddy? Maybe. No. I'm, I'm, buddy. I'm here. Uh, I am here. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, See, that's what I get for following the rules. Eric sent me a very specific email and said, make sure you're muted when you're not talking. Oh, so, well, yeah. So sorry, you, my know. Uh, you should know my that own. we don't follow our own rules. I mean, that come on. Now. Gotcha. I, 
I thought when I said your name, maybe you would, you know, know that. Stop. <laughs> anyway. Not that fast. <laughs> How's it been? How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good to be back on Morelia Python Radio. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. We, we all know, buddy. We and all know, buddy. Buddy doesn't need to do an intro. <laughs> GTP Keeper Radio. That's all I have yes. to say. All there right. you go. Okay. All right. Next, uh, who else we got? We got Ian. So Ian is a is a first time um, first time to Morelia Python Radio. Welcome, Ian. Let us know hey a guys, little bit how's about it going? Yourself. Awesome. Yeah, we're doing, we're right. doing great. Yeah, long time listener, first time guest. Thanks for having me. Thank you for saying that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Been waiting for somebody to say that. So, yeah, right. <laughs> that makes me happy. Anything oh. to make you happy, Owen. That's of course. I mean, uh, don't worry. We'll work in something about uh, I don't know, getting a tortoise for Eric to ride or something like that in this show somewhere. So we'll figure Sweet. it out. Thank you. So, Tell but, us a little bit uh, about yourself, Ian. Yeah, give us a little bit of an overview about you and your stuff. Sure. So I live down in South Florida. Um, the name of my company is S and J Reptiles. It's a, a family operation here. My kids and my wife do quite a bit to help me. Uh, we work primarily with green tree pythons currently, although I've worked with a lot of reptiles and a lot of other animals, mammals, birds, other animals besides just reptiles over the last, I don't know, 40 years or so, and um, focus primarily on green tree pythons currently. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, and next, I know I'm going to butcher his last name, uh, Nick Hebley. Uh, from uh, he, you would know him from Reptilinks. Welcome, Nick. Hey, how's it going, guys? Pretty good. Did I did I butcher your name? <laughs> yeah, you can pronounce it how you want. Most people pronounce it Hebley. Um, okay, <laughs> but that works. That works for me. Um, but yeah, how's everybody doing? Thanks, thanks a lot for the opportunity to come on. Absolutely. Um, so. Yeah. Maybe you could just give us uh, a little background on yourself and reptiles and how you got started. Yeah, uh, most people know me from, uh, I specialize mostly in carpet pythons, um, but recently we started this endeavor with Reptilinks, which is uh, basically an organically grown company. I'm a co-owner and creator of the product, and uh, i I own it with my younger brother, actually, who is a PhD in scientist, and he's contributed a lot. Um, and uh, what we do is we make whole prey sausage, and uh, it's an alternative prey source for people, which uh, as I got into this more and more, I realized it had been done before. Um, but uh, what we do, I guess, hasn't it hasn't been done in this way, so we're we're pretty excited uh, about bringing this to the table. Um, cool. As far as my background with animals, uh, you know, I study I have degrees in anthropology. Uh, my main uh, focus has been animal behavior, predominantly um, ape ape studies, primatology, and uh, ape language studies are where a lot of my I don't know if I'd call it expertise, but uh, where a lot of my knowledge is. And then uh, I've virtually kept, you know, all all types of, 
of non-venomous reptiles over the years. I've been keeping for, wow, 25, 26 years now. I guess I'm starting to get up there, and then I've been breeding <laughs> pretty seriously for about the past 15 years. So. Cool. Wow, that's awesome. Awesome. All right. All right, so I'll take the... Uh, I'll take the first question. Well, it's not really a question. Uh oh, somebody's echoing. Let's see. Okay. Do you hear that, Owen? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. Do we hear it now? Better. No. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay. So um, you're going to do the first question, and then we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to ask a question, and then we'll kick it out to some, to one to one of you guys so we'll let you know who's who lay it in there go as far as you want into in depth into something um and then we'll go further in and then once everybody's coming around we'll move on to the next question so okay so i'm going to say that this is um so when we're we're talking about this we're specifically thinking of chondros um and chondros are not an animal at least to my understanding, they're sort of underneath the uh, the cover uh, of the trees and such, so they're not getting maybe uh, as direct UV uh, or sunlight as maybe some other snakes, like, say, a diamond python. But um, do they still need this? Is this something that they uh, – that, that would optimize them, like I was saying earlier? Uh-oh, somebody's – Somebody's echoing again. Um, uh, so the idea is, is that, um, and, and sort of like what what uh, started this conversation was, um, Harlan had sent a picture of a snake, uh, a, a chondro that he received uh, was, um, I believe it was a wow. Call, no, maybe it was a captive hat. I don't know. It came from Indonesia. I'll let him go into that. However, the difference in the two um, was uh, very, very uh, crazy. And I don't know, Owen, if you could send that over in the uh, in the chat so people could check it out. But right. um, uh, could this be a cause of prolapse or something? Um, is you know sometimes when you breed chondros, uh, is this something that uh, you know I, I've always heard that they just die sometimes. Um, I don't know. I don't accept that as an answer. There has to be an answer. There has to be a reason. What is the reason? That's sort of the idea of what we're trying to uh, push tonight. Um, is is this something that would the UV help strength? Damn it! I'm jumping all around. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Uh, you know, so focus, damn it. I know. I'm sorry. The, the, the background noise distracted me. Is this a way that you can improve color, uh, the immune system, or the overall health? And does anybody that's on the panel or does anybody know that anybody that use, uses UV on any other snakes? So I guess we'll start with Harlan. We'll see what he has to say. Harlan, what do you think? Hey, hey. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting, like, when you first uh, contacted me after the last show, we noticed there was a lot of uh, uh, the thing about the penny in the water bowl uh, giving off copper ions. It seemed to, to resonate with a lot of people um, as far as something that would keep the, the water cleaner longer. When you first contacted me, you were saying, uh, well, you know, what do you think about water quality? 
And uh, at first I was kind of like, huh? Like, and then I started thinking more about it, and, and here I am telling people you know, about the penny in the water bowl. And you said, do you use tap water? And I said, yeah. But it really struck me when you said, do you drink tap water? And I'm like, no. We, we use like the, the Primo's bottle, you know, you go fill up your bottled jugs of water for our family. That's what we drink. And I said, well, but it's primarily just because of the taste. But yeah. all over the country, there are people with different situations, Flint, Michigan, um, <laughs> you know, all, all of, <laughs> you know, and, and you had mentioned something about um, a water issue in your area. And so it's, it, all of these things tie in. And um, so while water quality is important. When you talk about uh, UV light, um, you know, there are several different keepers. I know this is something that uh, really – you know, hits home with people that are keeping arus or uh, marokis or cyclops, animals that tend to have a lot of white. When we look at the wild counterparts to the captive bred animals, the, the, the wild caught animals tend to have a lot more white displayed. And uh, the vibrancy, the colors of the green are completely different, uh, you know, in, in the wild than they are uh, in captivity, generally speaking. And so we have to we have to ask the questions like like for instance that sarong picture it's the same snake the first photo was taken like two days after the animal arrived it was a wild caught adult male green tree python and um and the color of it is a, almost a deep more foresty green uh it's a very different looking snake the next picture is the same snake um and really hasn't gained any size. It was an adult to begin with. It hasn't gained any size, but the color has changed drastically. And so, you know, this leaves a lot of questions. The, the animal then becomes more, it's real blue looking. Uh, the, even the green is a more teal kind of a color rather than this vibrant green. And um, so, you know, this could be, uh, the cause could be a lot of different different scenarios. Maybe it's a hormonal shift. Uh, I haven't, nor, normally I don't see that so much in males, but Perhaps that it could be chalked up to a hormonal shift. Is it is it light? Is it diet? What is it that's causing this animal to change uh, coloration? And um, you know, uh, as far as, as UV goes, um, light is very important for certain the absorption of certain minerals, and um, and light also uh, has a big effect on on beta carotenes, and uh, so all these things play together. Uh, to make the to make the big picture of what we would consider a healthy animal, and uh, to negate that, to 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 kind of brush it off, um, you know, you're missing crucial components, elements that that uh, tie into the animal's nutrition. I was speaking with uh, Alan Rapeshi the other day, and he was saying, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of blow off uh, carotenoids, and he says I've done a lot of research. He's a gecko guy. Um, mm -hmm. And he does all the rapeshi diets, and he said, I've done a lot of research on carotenes. And he says, you know, people think of it, oh, well, it's just something that you feed it to your animal, it makes it colorful. But it's more than that. You know, these things have, have an effect on, on the whole physiology. He said, you know, lutein is something that's, that is important for vision. And, um, and, he ke and he kept going with some of these different components and what other effects that we know that it has on the animal's physiology. And so... What's, what we may just say, oh, well, this enhances the color. Well, I, I would not be surprised if there are 
um, carotenoids that, that affect a lot of other things, perhaps even the reproductive system, digestion, who knows? But we won't know if we don't ask the questions. And I think this whole show is, is more, more than answering questions. It's about, um, it's about animal ethology, paying attention to animal behavior. It's about looking uh, at, at the animals that we're keeping and trying to address any holes in our boat. You know, and and, uh, um, and that's what it's all about. So, you know, I know, uh, um, oh, David Haston, uh, another keeper who is working with uh, UVA, UVB uh, in different spectral values to try to bring out the whites in arus. You, you notice this not only in, in uh, green tree pythons, but in basilisks and white tree frogs, when they're bred in captivity, they, they lose some of the color elements, and they become this kind of teal, blue, green, which oh, everybody loves the color, right? But, mm-hmm. um, but we also like that natural color. Uh, green tree frog or uh, white tree frogs have this really uh, vibrant green to them when they're wild caught. And, and when they turn to their dark colors, they're kind of a mahogany color. But when you look at the captive red animals, they don't look like that. They're like a teal, blue, green to dark gray. And so there must be something. I suspect that it's probably, in my in my opinion, that it's a combination of of these micronutrients um, uh, in in conjunction with uh, the, the right spectral natural wavelengths of light. You can't you can't put the sunlight in a bulb, mm-hmm. right? And so so we have to kind of uh, we have to kind of look at that. You know, they, they try, um, of course, but but I don't think they'll be able to do it. So. Right. So yeah, that's okay. that's some of it. Cool. Let's see what uh Buddy's thoughts are. Buddy? Oh shoot. I hit him. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you keep having problems with Buddy? Oh no. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm having trouble with this board. There's so many people on it. I've never There's seen so many, many people, people on the board. Sorry, buddy. Right. Go ahead. You What's your have thoughts to, on you? You have to hire another uh you have to hire a stage manager. Um, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I I'm sure that uh, you know UV light is important, and you know we we don't offer it. Uh, you know, it's we just got to let the people who are doing their things, like David, kind of do what they're doing and see what they uh, come up with and try to figure out you know how much is enough and how much isn't enough, and you know. Uh, just go along with with what people are doing. It's uh, you know, hopefully people can actually document it so that it's not anecdotal and it actually leads to some valid research that we can actually point to and refer to. Um, you know, so you know that that's really my thoughts. Buddy, you also keep uh, diamond pythons, and I know some people like to make the same argument about UV. Uh, light encouraging or, or helping them out as a species that is a uh, that can kind of tolerate some nice cold swings. Um, would you consider if you're if something came to light is that UV is helpful to chondros? Would you also consider them making that making it part of your diamond projects as well? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, my diamonds are actually going outside this summer, so oh. we'll, we'll see how that goes. You're kicking them um, out of the house, so all right. <laughs> yeah, they're they're going to spend a good part of the summer outside. Wow. Uh, oh shoot! In enclosures, That's cool. so we'll see how that goes. Um, I have plans to do that with a chondro or two. I just don't know which chondro um, I'd be willing to let see 
possibly die if that happens. But <laughs> yeah. I, I like to put a condor outside too for, you know, I think I've got a month or six weeks of good good enough weather where they can they can they can tolerate it. So, but yeah, it's definitely interesting, and you just need to, you know, we want to do this type of stuff. We need to just make sure we approach it in a way that you know that it's repeatable and that you know whatever the outcomes are um you know can be definitely defined that's awesome real quick real quick buddy do you have any thoughts on um how you can do that like what would be if somebody wanted to try it what would you say to make sure that uh that their information could be used uh, yeah, it would just need to be a valid scientific study that's set up with control groups and, um, you know, use the, the standard protocol of like a, a double-blind study where the, you know, the researchers don't know which animals are being um, exposed to different, different amounts of UVA and UVB and look at different blood levels at different times of development and compare them to... Um, the animals in the control group that aren't getting the UVAB. And so you have to just look at that and see, you know, how, you know, what's changing in the animal, you know, or, you know, hormones are probably going to be affected. Um, you know, how does it affect, uh, you know, bone metabolism? What, you know, when you look at blood levels, what are you seeing as far as like what's in there as far as like different electrolyte balances, um, different you know, lipid levels and stuff like that to see how that's all affected by UVA and UVB exposure and see if it's, you know, I'm, I'm certain that there is a benefit, um, but, you know, we need to know with anything, anything can be good, but it also on the other side of it, too much of a good thing sure. is a bad thing. So, you know, where's that line drawn? And um, I think it's definitely interesting. A lot of people have had that theory that Harlan brought up about maracas and, and, um, a ruse, captive born and bred animals that just don't have the, the white color. People have said, you know, it's it's UVA, UVB exposure. Other folks have said that it's, you know, just because, you know, the animal is expressing that phenotype that maybe you need to do more than one generation of breeding. Maybe you need to do two or three to kind of really focus in on being able to produce that. I can't say whether that's true or not. I've never worked with those type of animals and tried to focusly breed for that. So, um, right. You know, those are some of the things you would have to look at to see as a comparison. Okay. And one last question, buddy. If you were to catch me in your backyard <laughs> stealing your diamond pythons, how mad would you be? Not terribly because <laughs> I know where you live. Damn it. All right. Okay, good. <clears throat> All right. So good find point. someone else to do my dirty work. Okay. All right. Okay. Works for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, uh, Ian. Ian. What's your thoughts, UV? Well, guys, you know, I think UV is a really interesting topic. I think, um, you know, you alluded to earlier that the lizard guys have done a lot of work in the area of nutrition. They've also done a lot of work in the area of UV. And I think that potentially you've got, you've got a number of different things going on. You've got the color aspect that Harlan touched on. Um, the pictures of that sarong are pretty dramatic, the before and after. And, um, you know, there's some other guys working with UV. Uh, David Hastings was mentioned, but I know David Brahms is also working on uh, UV. He's the guy who does the 3D printed perches. Um, mm -hmm. He's experimenting with UV, and, and so is uh, Heath Mescal over at um, Aru Chondrofan. He's doing some work with UV, and some of the things that they, they talk about align with what Harlan's talking about as far as color, 
And, um, you know, I think about other, other biological processes where, where UV and color, there's an, an interplay, and you think about, um, like, I keep a lot of plants. I'm a, you know, a gardener a little bit, and so I keep a lot of bromeliads, and you can take a green bromeliad that's in the shade and stick it in full sun, and six or eight weeks later, that thing is cherry red. And it builds up all that UV protectant pigment in the tissue to be able to compensate for all that extra sun it's getting. You see the same thing in corals, um, sea anemones, you know, a lot of other marine life where they're getting a mm-hmm. lot of direct sunlight, a lot of UV. They build up protective pigment. And so I wonder whether it's the blue hues or some of the white hues, whether it's in the, the Meraki's or the Arus or, or even some of the other animals, um, you know, some of the highland types that get a lot of that blue, maybe there is some some interplay or, or connection with the UV light exposure and potentially the, the buildup of protective pigments in the, the, their, their scales that give them that, that appealing look to us, but really it's more to, to protect their skin from all that UV exposure. I think the other thing, which is probably pretty well documented in, in other reptiles, you know, bearded dragons and some other you know, lizards, is the interconnection between UV light and, and vitamin D3 and calcium. And um, I think that's potentially, you know, something that ties into nutrition and overall health and growth and uh, maybe even the prolapse uh, situation in green tree pythons. And so uh, I think that there's, there's a lot of work, though, to potentially be done. And I actually just posted two papers that I um, got the links to on the, the chat room there. And Sean Michael Perry, who's another fellow green tree python keeper, um, turned me on to these papers. And I would have thought that most snakes would have the same effects with UV light, you know, across the board, even though snakes are pretty diverse. They're all snakes, let's say, compared to lizards or turtles or frogs or other larger groups of animals. And these two papers are pretty interesting because one of them is about the UV light um, effect on ball pythons, and the other one is about the UV light effect on corn snakes. And two pretty different species, um, obviously different genera, uh, you know, different habitats and and different behaviors one's diurnal one's nocturnal but it's pretty interesting that the corn snake there was a a, a significant or documented effect uh specifically on the i think it's the vitamin d3 levels in the serum of the blood and when they looked at the same thing in the the ball pythons they they actually found that the uv light didn't have that effect and so it may be that the uv light has a, a particular effect in green tree pythons but it may not and i think it's one of those interesting questions that may not necessarily be that difficult for us to answer. You know, Buddy talked about you just have to do it in sort of a methodical, thought-out, scientific way, double-blind, and, and not really be biased at the beginning. But if you think about the number of animals any one of us has, it's probably not a large enough sample size. Uh, if we still had Rico around, obviously he would have the numbers to, to kind of generate that kind of data. But it's it's one of those things we may be able to answer as a community, looking at what is the effect on, on a larger group of animals? And, and I think maybe outside of even the color and the vitamin D3 calcium, there, there could be other effects that UV light uh, plays because um, I was just talking to Harlan last night about the, the interplay between the UV light and these vitamin D3 precursors that are formed in your skin. And then there's, uh, there's actually a, a hormone that's involved uh, as it goes through the, the, I think it's the, the liver, the kidneys. And then, the, then there's another protein that plays into the whole process. So there's a lot of biological processes that are going on in our bodies. And they may not be things that are really acute that we can see in the short term, but over long periods of time, they can have a, an effect on overall health or maybe the, the ability to 
be reproductively active or even, you know, stressed a little bit in terms of pushing the animals. So I feel like that, that there's a big question mark there that we could potentially answer. And I wish I had more answers. I just seem to have a lot of questions, but I think that UV is a really interesting topic. Yeah. And I guess it would make sense that ball pythons, you're saying they weren't affected by the UV because they spend a majority of their time underground, correct? So that's what the I studies that... show. Yeah, the studies show. Yeah. Now, again, they were looking specifically at vitamin D3 concentrations in the plasma. So mm-hmm. in, with regards to the UV effect on that one process in the body, they found that the UV light did have an effect on the corn snakes, but it didn't on the ball pythons. So huh. uh, kind of an interesting difference. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and next we have Nick. Nick, any thoughts on UV? Uh, have you ever used it? Anything? Uh, Unfortunately, wanna... I don't have personal experience where I could compare, you know, a group of animals, control animals exposed to any uh, UV, UVB lighting in a, in a captive setting. Um, okay. I can't help but think back to, you know, when I originally started keeping snakes, how much I look forward to, to bringing them outside to, to sun themselves and, and, you know, empirically kind of, uh, watching and seeing how their activity levels are affected and, and, you know, how, how they bask outside. Um, it, it's so debatable and I think it's debatable just like the general topic of reptile nutrition. And that's because in order to do a study that would conclusively, uh, not only say, okay, these levels of, you know, D3 or, um, you know, you have these synthesis levels um, converting to calcium or whatever in the animal, that's excellent, but it would it would take so many years to conclusively and scientifically prove, hey, these are the health benefits from this set of animals that have been exposed to these that haven't. And, I think that that's really the the challenging part is to say okay well um and I thought those those journals were revealing I I looked over them you have to excuse me I I I did my homework I'm not sure I parsed through them you know for for a long time but there's got to be a correlation to free living populations and as uh Ian I believe it was Ian touched on it before I think it's imperative to look at the behavior of the animal and the free living population and adjust and compare from there. So in the case of corn snakes, they're obviously diurnal or, you know, crepuscular. I mean, it depends probably on the the season and what the weather is like and everything. Um, but it would intuitively make sense that those animals are converting and they're, they're utilizing that because that's essentially what they've evolved to do. Um, if you kind of step back to, we mentioned uh, diamond pythons are more of a, a high elevation montane species. Where are these animals collecting their heat sources? That's what that's what I couldn't help but uh, kind of think of when I was reading those uh, journals. Um, to me, it makes sense an animal that has to seek out and acquire and, and, and be in direct, you know, full spectrum sunlight to raise their core temperature, those animals have probably evolved to, to utilize that for, for calcium conversion and to 
you know, as a whole, be a healthy animal. Well, you flip that coin and you look at, you know, a completely nocturnal species or a species like a ball python, you know, that's inhabiting ant hills or, you know, any type of rodent burrows, essentially. Um, these animals, you know, wh- where are they getting their heat? That's what I ask myself as, as I'm reading these things. Um, you know, and, and it, it would make sense that uh, they might not utilize that in the same way. Um, so there's that aspect of it. I can't, I can only look at it intuitively. I've, I've looked at a lot of people that are saying, yeah, I use UV lighting, you know, and we see the colors and, and they swear by it. And once they, they use, uh, you know, some of this stuff with snakes, um, it's like, no, I won't turn back, but well, that's great. But how, how do we prove that this is, you know, in, improving the overall quality of life and, and, and health of an animal? Um, I hear from a lot of people, uh, since I started this, this company, and I obviously talked to a lot of people about reptile nutrition. And if, if you look at this comparatively to lizards, it's, it's pretty much mainstay, right? I mean, it's accepted that um, these animals need this exposure um, for good, you know, bone development, whatever, if you're, if they're reproducing calcium production um, for, for eggs and and everything. But it's actually not that simple because I've talked to several people and I'll, I'll use tegus for instance, because, we we saw a lot of our product to tegu people and they're very passionate about how, how they keep their animals and they're they're a very challenging animal to keep because they have a lot of different particular uh behaviors in their free living populations a lot of people describe them as like a very you know uh, a burrowing animal they they stay underground for for long periods of time and others will say no they they need full light exposure and they're a hard basking animal. As I started keeping them more and really talking to, you know, literally hundreds of people that keep these animals, it it really dawned on me that um, these animals aren't that simple. Um, they tend to take advantage of their sunlight uh, when it's available and, and, you know, utilize that. And then, and then they burrow after. So, um, when people started out, they kept their temperatures too low, and they had a constant uh, basking source for them. Um, but what people are finding now, especially you know some of the the breeders that keep high numbers of these animals, is that they're they're not a hard basking animal if they have proper lighting in proper mm-hmm. temperatures. So I thought that was really interesting. They'll only bask for three or four hours a day. Um, and then they might sleep for a while. You know, they're obviously going out, finding what food is easily available to them. And, you know, they're they're digesting that. They're, they're soaking in more light, and then they're going straight into their burrows. Um, so you, you'd think that would be pretty straightforward uh, and, and intuitively makes sense that the more diurnal species are the ones that are going to, uh, benefit fully from from having full spectrum lighting uv uvb um but uh i found this it's it's not a simple thing it would be excellent if we could actually quantify the the health of the animal in some way 
whether it's, you know, their production, how big their eggs are, how healthy healthy their offspring is, um, you name it. Uh, doing blood panels and everything is great, but what, in the grander scheme of things, what is that doing for the animal? So uh, maybe I'm just asking more questions. Uh, um, but, uh, <laughs> but that's a good yeah. thing, so yeah. we're okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Cool. Man, that was that was awesome, and uh, I love the perspective uh, from other reptiles as well. Harlan wants to jump back in there for. Uh... Yeah, you got me there. Yep. Hello. Yep. All right. Cool. So on something about about uh, utilization of of to, to be able to utilize calcium, and you know what. Uh, what was just said about about with tegus or it, it applies to bearded dragons, a, a, a lot of lizards. Um, you know, we we sometimes uh, we think, well, this needs light, but that doesn't. And uh, a friend of mine kept lots and lots of leopard geckos, and he kept them in these great big tubs, and he would clamp a lamp to the side and and point it down. And leopard geckos, we think of as being, you know, a, a fairly fairly fossorial animal, a nocturnal species, uh, and all of this. But it was surprising. Uh, just what Nick was saying is we got to pay attention to this, the ethology, the animal behavior. And these, these leopard geckos would definitely bask. And, um, and that, so that really struck me. Um, lizards have the parietal eye, and this is kind of like, uh, like a, a, a quick switch to the brain. And when the animal's uh, core temperature gets up too high, it says, you've had enough sunlight, get out of the sun. And um, when they're trying to raise their core temperature, they'll get out and they bask. And, um, and that, that uh, parietal eye is uh, like a direct connection to, to the pineal gland, and it really has um, an effect on the animal's whole physiology. When, when, a, when a lizard uh, is exposed to uh, UVA and UVB natural sunlight, it allows it to absorb the vitamin D3. It allows them to actually utilize it. And then the vitamin uh, D3... Uh, well, like uh, Ian said, it, it goes through a process in the liver and then in the kidneys, and um, it changes composition. Your body actually uses this like a precursor element to it, it um, transforms it into a totally different thing that, that your body uh, actually has to have exposure to sunlight to be able to create it. And then that's what allows you to absorb and utilize the, uh, the calcium. So it's like if you think of it like a chain – uh, if you're missing one link in the, in the chain, you're missing the, the, the calcium or you're missing the, the D3 or you're missing the exposure to sunlight, you're going to have metabolic bone disease problems in lizards. And, and so we know this uh, from lots of research. The, the fecundity of most lizards is, is uh, the, the number of eggs that they produce is far higher than what you're going to see uh, in, in most snakes. And so you know, uh, Nick was saying, well, how, how do we do this? We've got to find a, a kind of a shortcut. And although uh, um, we're comparing apples and oranges in a lot of instances, like with this study that Ian mentioned about uh, ball pythons not, not utilizing uh, the, 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 the D3, not finding it in the, in the blood plasma, but the corn snakes are finding it. So it's not all going to be straight across the board. But 
by by taking a, a species like, for instance, corn snakes, and uh, we can we can run other tests with them because they have higher fecundity. They, they can double, sometimes even triple clutch. Like uh, Pueblo milk snakes can. I've I've had them uh, quadruclutch in a season. And um, so you take something that has a higher fecundity like that, um, and then you can, you, it gives you more opportunities to, to do studies, at least on the, the reproductivity um, and, and how supplementation or uh, UV exposure might affect it. And so we can kind of shortcut some of this, and then we have to, I mean, the blood test would be fairly simple on a green tree to pull it and say, is this utilizing D3 or is it not? And um, and then you can apply the knowledge that you've, you've garnered from animals that reproduce on, on a, 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 a tighter frequency um, to, to help you with the study. I mean, if you did it with something that, that uh, produces a few offspring or uh, it takes a long time for them to reach maturity or uh, they, they only produce every other year, like, say, emeralds, where at your very best it's every other year. You know, and sometimes it's that way with green trees too. This would be difficult to get the the data, the volume of data we need. Um, and so I think reaching out to the community is a great way to to kind of uh, uh, obtain more um, a broader population of of data. So so all of that, you know, it all ties together. Um, and and who knows, maybe. Uh, it will help with, with – we've got a lot of issues that we see in green tree pythons, and it's not just green tree pythons. This applies to all different types of reptiles. The, the knowledge that we've gained from multitudes of ball python keepers has helped immensely. So people, we kind of like, like to uh, foo-foo the ball python keepers as kind of a faddish thing, but the, the truth is that they have such a huge population of keepers who keep large numbers of these animals that we're able to garner an incredible amount of data from them. For, for instance, ball python keepers have a formula, and maybe a lot of the ball python keepers aren't even familiar with this, but, but um, certainly those that have, have been around for a while uh, know it. And, and this is this, and I don't know that it applies to other species of snakes, but, but with ball pythons they have this um, this formula that says a third of that animal's body weight, a female's body weight prior to copulation um, is what will go into egg production. So you can take a 1,200-gram female ball python, and you say, okay, well, uh, 400 grams of her weight will be translated into um, reproductive material that will leave her body. Okay? And then right. you can say, okay, the average healthy ball python egg weighs approximately 90 grams. She's capable of laying four eggs, four healthy eggs. And I will tell you, it's, it's uncanny how accurate this is. It really, it, even if you wind up with some slugs, uh, you wind up with more eggs. If you, if you put them on a scale, what exits her body, it, it really, uh, it's, it's pretty darn close. We don't have this for green tree pythons. And it would be really simple just by utilizing uh, the community out there to start, uh, really start keeping records of whatever it is you're doing with your animal. It might not seem important today, but down the road, that data that you're, that you're gathering uh, can be utilized. And, you know, maybe it's not in a scientific uh, setting. And so, you know, if, you, if we're asking for a certain set of data to be collected and, and maintained, then we have to give some sort of, this is how we want you to do it, a, a methodology to it. Um, mm. And, you know, 
When you look at a scientific paper, it's materials and methods, and, and you want to have everybody collecting it in the same manner, um, and you want people with a fair number of animals and the scientific mind, the wherewithal to, to follow through. And, and then I think you can start, you can begin to answer some of the questions. Now, some of it's going to be anecdotal. That's uh, kind of self-evident. But when you have large populations of, of animals being kept, for instance, um, David Brahms, uh, posted a, a link to uh, an MVF uh, discussion. Uh, David Brahms is a, a breeder and keeper, and uh, and he's also the guy that produces those those killer perch holders and and the deli cup holders for for your cage. I love them. Um, mm. But yep. sure. But uh, he posted this article, this discussion, and one of the guys who commented was was uh, Bill Brandt, and he talked about. Over the years, we've kept, we've had more than 250,000 ball pythons pass through here, and um, and he says, uh, you know, we, we've, uh, you know, when you're looking at at 25,000 um, green tree or uh, ball pythons uh, at one facility, that's a lot of information. He's got, he says, and we've we've yeah. kept a lot of records on this, and um, and he noticed, he said, hey, I found a correlation between. Uh, um, the the wild caught captive hatched babies that came from wild caught parents, uh, those animals seemed to have a, a less of a um, they didn't not, not as many of them died. In, in I mean, with the captive bred stuff, he had a higher death rate with animals that were the the babies that were captive bred than he did from the bush babies or not bush babies but the captive hatched babies. And this follows right in with what we were talking about uh, in prolapse uh, um, in the show that I did the last time with Vladimir Odinchenko saying, look, uh, the, the wild-caught snakes that laid eggs for us, we didn't have prolapse in those, but we did in the animals that were captive bred. And that is, you know, people who – those are guys that have lots and lots of animals. If they're seeing a pattern – I don't care how scientific or anecdotal it is. When you have that kind of a population base, if they're seeing a pattern, baby, I'm paying attention. And, uh, right. and these, these sorts of things, when, when we have enough people, we have a broad community here. And when we start communicating with one another more, sharing the little tidbits that we're gathering along the way and asking the right questions, then we'll, then we'll begin to uh, be able to answer them because we know what to look for. So I think uh, Ian probably has something to say now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With that, I'll, I'll stop yakking. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. You can mute me. Yes. Well, so. you know, I, I one one thing that Harlan just touched on, and I want to echo it, is the fact that you know a lot of this information is anecdotal, and while I do think that it's important to to try to follow the scientific process and document things and you know record the results and your methodology and make sure you're not biased on the front end. Anecdotal is also okay because that's where we get hypotheses and ideas and, and things that we want to test and we want to learn more about. So I think oftentimes people uh, can sometimes be discouraged because they think, well, I only have a sample size of one, you know, but sometimes that sample size of one when you see something or you make an observation or you just have a gut feeling about something that is anecdotal based on a small sample size, oftentimes that's where the theories come that originate from that you then put to the test in a full scientific experiment and maybe you prove them or you disprove them. And that's part of that learning process. So 
um, while we don't have the luxury of having huge collections um, where we can generate large statistically significant data and because these animals don't reproduce rapidly and they don't mature rapidly, uh, we just don't have access to it. But that shouldn't discourage us. There's still the opportunity to push that, that envelope a little bit and, and come up with some crazy theories and prove some of them right and some of them wrong. And to that point, I, I want to go back and touch on something that Nick said before about the UV light, and um, I don't want to you know, just gloss over it, but he said something about let's look at what these animals do in their natural environment and, and how they behave. And one of the things that I wish we had more information uh, is, is from the field, some of the stuff that Daniel Natush has put out there, but I wish there was more data about how these animals behave in the, in the wild, in their natural habitat. Where do they spend their time in the, in the canopy? You know, are they way up high where they potentially are getting a lot of UV light? Are they typically down low, or do they make that up and down journey on a daily basis? More about their diet in the wild, and not only that, but we potentially might be able to collect samples, blood samples from wild animals, and, and look at the vitamin D3 and compare that to captive animals. So I feel like there's a big chunk of data from the natural habitat missing as well, and it would really be great if we could get more of that information. And I'm sure just about everyone that's listening that keeps a green shoe python at home would love to go to Indonesia or New Guinea and, and tromp around and look for them, but obviously we know it's not necessarily the safest part of the world or the easiest place to go visit. But um, but I also think that we can make some some observations in our captive animals and buddy i love the idea of keeping them outside and living here in florida that's something i've thought about often although with the warm weather we also have raccoons and snakes and otters and fire ants and all kinds of other things that like to live outdoors too so i'm not sure yeah. like you if i'm willing to make a <laughs> sacrifice um, but um but one of the things that i noticed with some of my animals and i initially I didn't really pay too much attention to it, and now the more I see it and the more I think about it, the more I tie it back to this UV light thing, is my adults are along a wall that's opposite a very large westerly-facing window, and um, and it gets blasted, just blasted with sun, especially in the afternoon. And uh, being in the sunshine state, it we get a lot of sun here. And in the afternoons, I've noticed, especially some of my larger females, that they now know the pattern of the sun, the way it hits that side of the room. And even though that, that sunlight's going through a window, so that's one pane of glass, and I live in Florida, we don't have to have double pane glass, um, and then I've got a pane of glass on the front of their PVC cage, they will actually come down off that higher perch where they are always most comfortable. They will come down to that middle or lower perch to sit where the direct sunlight is hitting them. And it's warmer there, and they obviously are, are seeking out that sunny spot, so to speak. It's almost like they're sitting at the pool sunbathing in the afternoon, and you know how it feels when you sit in the sun. You know, it feels good. You feel that, that, that UV light hitting you, and, and it feels good. It's warm. And so these animals, even though it's there's no way they're getting anywhere close to the, the full spectrum of UVA or UVB through all that glass filtering it out, but, but they still are seeking it out and they're doing it for a reason. And I don't exactly know why or what it is that they're missing, but I'm itching to start converting some of my cages over from the standard light bulbs over to UV lights and, and see what that does for them because I feel like they're telling us something. And um, I lived in Gainesville in North Florida for a long time and had the chance to, to get to know uh, Eugene and Cindy Bissett. And Eugene has about a million sayings, I think, but one of the ones that really stuck with me is he always used to say, you have to be a student of the serpent. Uh, and, now you're Eric's favorite. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, that is. 
And, and I really think that that's something we should take to heart yeah. because sometimes these animals are telling us things just in their behavior when they're doing something or they're not doing something or they're doing something in a certain way. Um, and so I wish we had the other half of that equation of what they do in the wild so we could compare what they do in the wild to what we're seeing them do in captivity, and then we could make adjustments or you know, optimize the husbandry or the herpticulture, as Eric likes to say, to try to address some of those things because – um, you know, while I think we have the luxury of standing on the, giant, the, the shoulders of giants in the industry that came before us, it doesn't mean that you know, there's not still things that we can learn or tweak or optimize or just push the envelope a tiny bit more. And, and I think watching the way that these animals move to sit in the light, for me at least, um, they're telling me something. And I'd love to know if you guys or anyone else out there sees the same sort of thing because it would be interesting to compare do other people have any sort of natural light exposed to their animals and do the animals seek it out or do the animals hide from it because uh, that's one of the other things i hear some people say that you know if you give them uv light you have to give them a lot more foliage in the cage because they have to have the ability to hide from it because you can i think it was buddy said earlier you can overdo it i would comment a few things one what you said about Indo being dangerous, that's why we send Ari. Um, so, you know, we don't go, we send Ari, and, you know, hopefully Ari doesn't die. So there's that. Um, also, you said about sitting out in the sun. I'm Scottish. Sun and I don't get along very well, so it doesn't feel good. Uh, and then what you said about the sitting out with the UV light, I have actually been kind of messing with this, but I haven't been commenting on it, and I haven't been talking about it. And I've been doing it with my Morelia Carinata. And right now I have a pair of baby rough scales and they sit underneath a UV and heat lamp because they're set up in naturalistic setups in 10 gallon tanks. And those guys will actually sit out, get really, really warm and then go and hide the rest of the day. So morning time, lights turn on, they come out from wherever they are sit on their big branches, soak up everything, and then I don't see them for the rest of the day. So it's kind of like they do enjoy it to a certain point, and then they want to get the hell away from it. So it's really cool to watch them do that. So I'll keep everybody up to date on that as I start actually telling people what I'm doing over here. So, um, but uh, Eric, do we want to, I think Buddy said he wanted to comment, and uh, Ian, you now have to wait your turn. So, um, Eric, you want to click Buddy on here? Yeah, he's on. All right, go ahead, Buddy. Start talking. Just tell me to shut up. So. Yeah, sure. No, no worries. Um, yeah, Harlan mentioned the post on MVF, which is over there. Go take a look. David Brahms posted some of the stuff he's doing, which is pretty fascinating. Um, but the the ball python guy who commented was really intriguing. That that was the the one post for me that really stuck out, and and you know. Harlan already went over what he said was, you know, brought all these animals in, the wild cults did really well, the, the captive bred animals, they, they tanked on me. And I, you know, and I know we're going to get there, but I think that, um, that, you know, looking for like, why, why maybe did that happen? And, you know, you, you got to look at, you know, what are the wild caught animals eating? We, we know that diet plays a substantial role in your immunity and your gut flora. And, um, you know, it, it's just intriguing that the, you know, what weren't the captive bred animals 
getting possibly as in the sense of, you know, maybe intestinal flora that helped bolster, you know, their adaptive immunity um, as opposed to the captive bred animals. Naturally, I had to comment on that. Right. Awesome. Okay. So, and then said, Ian wants to mention one more thing. So go ahead, Erica. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, go ahead, Ian. You're live. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, to the point about um, what Buddy was saying earlier about outdoor cages, there mm-hmm. is a guy um, locally here in South Florida that I know who, who actually had like a very large screened-in patio lanai kind of area. And uh, he actually kept three chondros outside uh, for a pretty extended period of time, not quite over winter, but for several months. And the only protection they had from, from UV light was just nylon screening. And, and these animals looked fantastic and, you know, great coloration and, and really seemed to thrive. So, so I really think, Buddy, the, the idea of keeping them outside is, is fantastic. I, uh, I really like that idea. And, and maybe I'll pick your brain a little bit about how you're going to do it. Um, but the other thing I was going to mention is that I don't know if you guys take your animals outside at all, yeah. but I know, you know, you see people take them outside and they're like, oh, I took them for a walk or they climbed a tree or whatever. And uh, we do a lot of our pictures outside. Uh, my wife actually is the one who um, does all of our photography and, and she likes to put them outside in a, a photo booth and use the natural lighting. And one of the things that I noticed is that they really, not only do they look better visually in the sunlight and I think part of that is just they kind of warm up and, um, you know, just that, that lighting from, from outdoors makes them look better. But I feel like oftentimes they, it's almost like they get, like, charged up. They get really energetic. They get really energized. Even little hatchlings, I've taken a whole tub of hatchlings when they're still in the, the bin that they hatched out in, and you take them outside and you put them in the sun to start taking some pictures of them, and it's amazing how active they get. It's like they're soaking up that UV light. Uh, more so than I generally see indoors. And so uh, just another anecdotal observation, but I wonder with you, whether it's you guys or listeners out there, you know, when you take your animals outdoors and you put them in that natural light, even if it's for photography purposes, do you, do you see those things? You know, do you observe that those animals seem to respond to that light in a different way than they would indoors or under artificial light? So just another I do. thought. Yeah, real quick, I um, when we went down to, to uh, Carp Fest at uh, Bill's place. Um, yes. We were mm-hmm. in his room, and, you know, uh, he had I, – I don't even remember which chondro it was, but you couldn't really see the blue at all. Um, uh, but uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the cool thing was is that huh, – look, I mentioned him. He's like Beetlejuice. I mentioned him, and well, he comes I love in. Because he's sending us <laughs> anyway. pictures of – He's sending us pictures of no, surgical no, 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 no. procedures. Anyway. Say that on air. I don't say that on air. Anyway. Sorry. So anyway, the thing I noticed is when we took it the uh, that same animal out to the pool uh, where the sun was coming down, holy, holy shit, what a difference. Man, it was we, like. We should, we should take sickness into sunlight is what you're telling me. Is when we go down, the first thing well, we should do is just pull sure him that out that into the sun. I'm pretty sure that's how Bill takes his pictures, but what yes. I'm saying is is that you could visibly notice a difference between the animals. And I will say that I'll post in the chat room there the one thing you say about being active is funny because as soon as Owen picked up the uh chondro, it's shit on him. So Yeah, it did. That's all over me. 
That was their, I thought that was a Carpondro because I thought it was the it sense that way, I hated matter. it. <laughs> yeah, either either one, they could probably sense that. So you know, the uh, it, it, they do seem to be, I guess, move more. So I don't know if they're chasing the sunlight or trying to get away from it. It kind of seems like it's more Maybe of a natural. Eat. Yeah, it kind of seems like it's a more of a natural thing to get the snake moving. I think one of the main problems that we have with reptiles and snakes in general is obesity can happen pretty darn quick. It happens a lot with monitors. Uh, it happens a lot with everything else. So it, it's almost like, is it healthier for the snake to have to move around? Where if it's not in a bin where it's like, okay, I'm at my warm spot. All right, I'm going to go to the front of the bin. All right, I'm good for the rest of the day. If it's kind of got to shift around and figure itself out, is that better for it? It's one of the things to maybe think about. So I guess uh, you want us to move, we want to move into the next topic, right, Eric? Yeah, yeah, let's let's hit nutrition. All right. Uh the next topic of course is nutrition. And the big question is is and this is something that we've asked with numerous species and numerous people, a varied diet. Is there pros to this? Is there cons to it? Um and how do you know that we are feeding our chondros the diet that they receive it, to give them an optimal life? You know, obviously we give them European rodents, is that kind of where that would go, um, and then can a varied diet or a non-rodent diet cause a prolapse, or do we see more prolapses because of uh, a rodent diet, and uh, will a varied diet strengthen the immune system? Uh, so I guess we'll start with, I think you said Harlan, right? So Harlan, what yeah. do you think about nutrition in a varied diet? You know, uh for years, you've seen this uh, again and again about um, green tree pythons specifically. Someone will say, well, mice are, are you know, you've got to feed mice. Mice are better than rats. And then the other side will say, oh, no, no, rats are better than mice. And personally, I don't think that uh, the either case, either scenario is correct. And, you know, I, I like to feed mine. I feed them African sulfur rats. I feed them mice. I feed them rats. The different fat contents can be used in each of these rodents can be used to your advantage, uh, you know, when you're trying to put weight on a female prior to breeding or when you're trying to put weight on uh, a female uh, uh, post-ova position after she's laid the eggs. Um, you, can, you can utilize those rodents to, to do just, just what you're looking to do if you're, you know, like African software rats are a rich, buttery meal, and they put <laughs> weight on stuff fast, and I don't care that green tree pythons aren't from Africa, they love them. And, you know, a lot of species will, it's sort of like feeding a gerbil, um, but they, they are better as far as uh, reproduction. Um, it's, you'll, you'll get a lot further, better results trying to breed African software rats than gerbils that will have four or five babies at a crack. These things flat crank them out. So, so that's good. And then I think on top of it, um, if you're gut loading, there's a lot of different ways to address nutrition. Um, you can supplement or you can gut load, just like you'd gut load your crickets. You, you put a, a carrot in, a, in a, uh, a tub of crickets, and you can see the orange right through them. And then you feed yeah. those to your geckos, right? So it's not just carrots. It's a lot of, a lot of different things. But when I'm, when I, with my rodents, I, the week before they're going to be fed, I, I like to feed them all, the, all table scraps. My, my kid's half-eaten hamburger. My, uh, my wife peeled apples or potatoes and, 
and uh, you know there's there's a piece of melon or there's whatever it is. We put all that stuff and let, let these guys that are fixing to be fed out the week before they're being fed out. We're putting that into them as well. I I, I kind of like to say this. Uh, um, well, I'll, I'll say it. Uh, uh, well, Owen, um, mm-hmm. by the way, by the way, uh, when Owen picks up a snake and it defecates on him, this is not anecdotal. This is scientific. I mean, this <laughs> behavior that we <laughs> no. Um, but so, uh, Owen, if I if I gave you uh, a choice between a Hershey's bar and a Cliff bar for a snack, mm. which one would you pick? Mm, probably a Twix bar. For a snack, I would pick the Hershey's bar because I'm a, I'm a sweet. Yeah. But, but for yeah. nutrition, you, you, you would now if I told you that you're going to eat, you, you only get one or the other for the rest of your life. I'm oh, going to give you either either the Hershey's bar or the Cliff bar, and that's what you have to sustain life on. Which one are you going to pick? Well, the Hershey bar, and I'll die young and be happy. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, most um, if it's if it was really down to it, and, uh, yeah. and that's all he had to survive on. I really know that he would probably pick the Cliff bar begrudgingly, and he would be crying about his Hershey bar as they carried him away. But, mm. um, but then let's throw another another uh, um, wrinkle into the map here. Now we're going to enter you into the, the Olympics. You're eating all you're eating is Cliff bars, and we're going to let you run against uh, the guys that just had a juicy steak, a nice salad. <laughs> Are you going to win any Olympic medals? We want to no. win Olympic medals <laughs> with our snakes, with the animals that we have. And so, you know, here we're feeding them uh, a diet of rodents that, for the most part, get a pretty monotypic diet. Um, and they can formulate this stuff. Ian could probably shed more light on on the formulation, what goes into uh, a formulating rodent diet. But they they really do pay attention to um, minerals and fats and proteins and all of these different levels and percentages for each different rodent and for each specific different phase of life. Are we just using a growth? Are we a growth diet? Are we using a breeding diet? What, what is it? Well, uh, that's great for growing rodents, but... Nowhere when I read on the bag of my Harlan Sprague Dolly or my uh, Missouri uh, rodent chow, do, do I see that it's, that it's designed for making good snakes? Mm. And, and so I think varying the diet is really important. We have a lot of problems in, in that we can, you know, and I'm just touching, touching base on a few. In green tree pythons, uh, babies that are born deformed, is it, is it just a, a birth defect or is there more to it? Babies that are born kind of spindly, or, uh, of course, prolapse, skin folds. Uh, I've never in, in, in my life seen a wild-caught snake with a skin fold, but I see it in, cap- in captive-bred animals. Um, you know, coloration, you know, all of these different things that, that we see, uh, the differences the, when you compare and contrast wild-caught animals with captive-bred animals, uh, you know, it all, plays, it all kind of plays together. And, uh, you know... Ian and I are working on um, a subject that, uh, uh, well, I'm, I, I've come to call him Turd Diggler, um, and I'll probably <laughs> let him <laughs> let him let him uh, uh, go into more um, uh, information on that here here in a little bit. N- not yet, but uh, here in a little bit, I think we'll we'll talk more about that. But but um, you know, I I really think varying the diet is important. 
and and also I think supplementation is important. You know, uh, I, I'm I'm doing studies with polyvisol, and I really mm-hmm. think uh, this year uh, specifically I noticed a big difference um, in animals that that I hadn't uh, used polyvisol on, and I dealt with um, with a lot more mortality in babies, uh, prolapse. And I really think there's something to it, enough so that I, that I, would, I would rather continue to treat all of my snakes um, using uh, some sort of, of multivitamin uh, supplementation. So, so anyway, um, that, that'll get it started, and uh, let's, let's pass it to the next chat. Cool. So uh, next up would be Buddy. Uh, Buddy, what do you think about the very diet? I think it's a great idea. Um, do you use it or no? Um, personally, no. Um, <laughs> only because I don't know if, if I can find a decent source for uh, for what I would like to use. Um, I, I primarily, you know, I, I feed mostly mice. But before I fed mice, I, I was a pretty much a strict rat feeder. As soon as my chondros were big enough to take a pink rat i rolled them right over to pink rats and all the problems that people say that they had with rats i've never experienced um so i i think that uh you know a lot of the myths without you know using um you know rats are going to lead to prolapses and all that stuff i personally never saw it um i think that uh you know it's it would be very difficult to to you know, mimic the diet of a wild green tree python unless you're able to, you know, source high quality reptile, you know, reptiles to feed them. Um, and, you know, they, so it, it's a challenge. But I think a varied diet's a good thing. I think that, uh, you know, eating one thing all the time is not good. Um, supplementation is definitely interesting. Um, having a sports nutrition background, I could tell you that, um, 20 years ago, the, the theory for, um, you know, training Olympic athletes, Harland, um, was to give them boatloads of supplementation, um, both water-soluble and, and fat-soluble. Um, and now we know that we've seen negative results from that, especially with the fat-soluble vitamins. Um, so now we don't believe that supplementation is the, at, at high levels is the way to go. It has to be done sporadically. Um, and, and there's a timing component with that as well. Um, and, you know, not saying that you can, you know, jump correlation between human nutrition and, and snake nutrition, but with supplementation, once again, you got to be careful, you know, how much is enough, how much is too much. Um, it would definitely be, you know, definitely be wise if you're going to supplement to, to go on the lighter side of it. Um, and and see what the results are, and you know, just go that route. Um, and that's pretty much all I have to say about it. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, Ian, what do you think about a very diet, and do you use it? So, I would echo probably what both Harlan and Buddy have already said. Mm-hmm. Um, I do use a very diet. I feed both mice and rats, primarily uh, just small rats uh, to the the larger adult animals, but I I tend to alternate. 
this last year, uh, 2016, I was fortunate that uh, I have a local uh, rodent breeder that I get live pinkies from when I have babies uh, just to get them started. And she raises a lot of African soft furs and another local keeper here, um, uh, Eric Chung at Chung Reptiles. He keeps chondros and he breeds African soft furs. And so I thought, you know, let me let me give these African soft furs a try. I've got access to them locally live um, or even some frozen ones. And so this year I actually started to incorporate those in rotation. You know, I might give two extra large mice, then a small rat, then two extra large mice, then an African soft fur um, in subsequent feedings, not at the same time, obviously. And, um, and I noticed that the females that laid last year put back weight on and and recovered and we're back in condition far faster than I've ever seen before. Um, So I think that a varied diet is a good thing. I know that in a a, a lot of places, a lot of keepers, they will also include some avian prey, uh, chicks, quail, things like that. I know there are risks with that, and I'm not by any means saying that you should do that. Uh, I personally haven't, but I think that's that's kind of an interesting thought as well. Um, But I also think that kind of going back again to what Nick said about looking at the animals in their natural habitat and the natural biology or ecology of them. And there's a, a Natouche paper actually that's on Buddy's site. And um, it talks about looking at, at different populations and different um, sexes of, of green tree pythons and are there any differences. And, and there was one little snippet that I thought was really interesting in there where it talks about, um, and here I'll just read it, uh, rather than paraphrase it, but it says, in fact, large males prey almost solely upon mammals, whereas large females fed upon large numbers of lizards and a few birds. As green tree pythons grow, males begin to hunt exclusively at night, while females continue to hunt during the day. This may explain the higher proportion, uh, higher proportions of diurnal prey in the female's diet, which could be related to increasing body condition prior to reproduction. And I thought that was really, I, I don't know, maybe it was just like a little you know, aside to to when they were writing the whole paper, because it's not necessarily, you know, a real take-home message there. But that really caught my attention, because it shows differences between males and females, diurnal versus nocturnal, and it would make sense if you're hunting 24 hours a day, you're going to have access to a wider range of potential prey items than if you're only hunting at night. Mm -hmm. And so that just says to me that they're probably eating a much wider variety of uh, prey in the wild than, than maybe we give them credit for. And uh, you know, maybe we should be trying to mimic more of that variety in their diet <clears throat> or taking a look at what that variety of prey items looks like nutritionally. What's that profile if you have, you know, mammalian, avian, and, you know, some reptilian prey in there like geckos or lizards or skinks or something. You know, what does that look like if you look at what that might represent, um, you know, as an overall diet on an annualized basis or something like that? And so I question, you know, how much variety are we giving them versus how much variety they even need? Because I'm only giving them a variety of mammals. I'm not giving them anything avian. I'm not giving them any reptilian prey. I think the other thing is, um, you know, I know, Owen, you and I talked about it a little bit, and you mentioned it earlier, and and Harlan touched on it, but commercial rodent diets, while they are great diets, and and I used to work in that industry and sell to a lot of guys out there, um, those are not formulated for reptiles. You know, those are formulated for rodents, and while they're formulated very well for rodents, the objective in formulating those diets is the least cost to deliver the nutrients that are required to keep rodents alive and to get rodents to grow and reproduce. And so the, the two thoughts that I have with regards to rodent diets is, one, 
you're not taking into account what does the snake need. Um, the other thing is that if you've ever seen a rodent in the wild versus a rodent in captivity versus a rodent in the subway in New York City, um, they look a lot different. And generally speaking, rodents in the wild tend to be trim, lean, and rodents in captivity, you know, your, your normal Swiss Webster white mouse is, is pretty chunky. And um, I think, you know, compare that to if you were a predator and you're going out and you're, you're hunting deer in the woods versus going into a pen and you're taking down a cow, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot more lean meat on an animal that is living in the wild than a domesticated animal. And so not only are those diets not formulated for snakes, but those diets are in most instances making pretty plump, fat, almost American looking rodents. And so if we're feeding our snakes a fat mouse and they're living a rather sedentary lifestyle, then chances are they're probably pretty fat themselves and fat snakes I think we all probably agree don't necessarily always make good breeders and don't necessarily have uh, longevity to them and so I wonder if something along the lines of what Harlan was alluding to almost like a gut load because you could have a, a rodent diet that you use to raise the rodents but you might have a almost like a finishing diet or a gut load that you might use to um, you know to make them a better prey item for for your reptile and um, so I think that's a really interesting concept there. The other thing that I think is interesting is that um, the, the different life stage issue, because you know, animal uh, neonate green tree pythons versus grow out animals that are you know, going through a massive growth of both skin and muscle and bone uh, versus animals that are reproductively active, they're all going to have somewhat different nutritional needs. And generally speaking, it's the same mouse from the same bag of frozen mice in the freezer that they get regardless of what life stage they're at. You just adjust right. the size. And so <clears throat> I think that potentially there might be an opportunity to do a little bit better in that area as well. Um, you know, I know when I'm feeding those extra large mice to, to my bigger animals, whenever you find one that looks like, oh, that, that's a pregnant female, she's got a belly full of, you know, potentially babies before she, she was frozen off, or, mm-hmm. or that pinky that's got a little bit rounder belly full of milk, you're like, oh, I want to give that one to, you know, to this animal. It needs a little bit extra. Um, so I just wonder, you know, a mouse is not a mouse is not a mouse, and we generally tend to think in that way. And um, and even just the different life stages of those animals, they have different nutritional values, especially when you look at the what they call the ash content, which is where all that, that micronutrient mineral is, the calcium, the magnesium, the strontium, the selenium. A lot of those micronutrients are pretty important in a lot of the metabolic biological processes going on in the body, whether it's, you know, um, you know processing amino acids and synthesizing proteins or repairing, um, you know, the skin or... Um, even putting that energy into reproduction, developing uh, follicles or, or developing sperm. You know, there's a lot of different things that go on in the body that use a lot of those micronutrients, those minerals. And uh, I posted a link in the chat room there that I thought was really interesting about not only some of the differences in the nutritional values of the diets going into the animals, but then on Rodent Pro, they've actually got a really nice chart that shows a lot of information about uh, the nutritional content of, of different prey items. And when you, you, you tend to hear a lot of people talk about, well, rats are really high in fat versus mice, or, or I, I hear you know, a lot of off-the-cuff comments like that, you start looking at the differences in the fat and the protein and, and what caught my eye, especially some of the ash content. And 
you know, in some regards, there might be some some things about rats that are actually more desirable, especially that ash content, the minerals, and um, and I think that's something that's really interesting. I, I will say the one caveat is uh, the information that I saw on the Rodent Pro chart there. While I think it's really interesting and and potentially helpful. I did find some conflicting information out there about the comparison between rats and mice. And Nick, you might have some information on your website as well that I saw um, that might offer a little bit different view. And so maybe there's some more digging that needs to be done even on that end. And, and Nick, maybe you can talk further to that. But I, all of these, I think, are great questions. And I don't have any answers. I just have a lot of questions. But I think that variety is a, is a good thing. We look for variety in our diets. And uh, I don't know why we wouldn't want variety in their diets as well. Uh, yeah, Nick, what uh, what do you think about the nutrition? I know this is kind of like your uh, little bit of an area of expertise it, it's here. It's something I've spent a little bit of time Yeah, in, like, I guess, <laughs> something there, yeah. Um, it'll make you want to pull your hair out. That's why I keep my hair short. Um, just <laughs> like Ian said, you can look across the board wherever you're getting your nutritional values from. They all come from different, different labs. They all come from different, uh, uh, dilution techniques. I mean, you name it, you can look at the nutritional value of an adult mouse from 10 different sources on the internet, whether it's rodent pro uh, our website, uh, you name it, in a, in a book, um, and they're all going to be different. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for that, and, and you guys touched on uh, diet, which are actually feeding to the prey items. That's going to have a major role in that. Um, are they feeding, com- you know, are you feeding commercial diets? Are you feeding table scraps? Uh, how you know Harlan said he liked to mix it up before you know these things meet their demise. Um, but uh, that is a very very frustrating part of uh, this whole thing. I don't even know where to start to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you define what is nutritious to a reptile? How do you define what varied is? Uh, they're all relative terms. That's what I'm finding. Um, it is not cut and dry. What I have been forced to do to try to tackle this through the work that I've been doing, and it's obviously all hands-on. It's it's all um, just uh, providing uh, what what you think would be most suitable for that particular species. Um, What are they? What I like to do is, what are they starting out with in their free-living populations? Well, we want to try to concentrate on on uh, GTP here, so. Are they eating fat, plump mice that are feeding on, you know, commercial diet? No, not at all. Um, are they even feeding on rodents? No, uh, unless they come across, you know, a nest right after they're they're hatched or whatever. Um, you know, they're going to be feeding on what they can find, um, and I th- I think that's very revealing in in replicating um, um, the diet in which you want to feed some of these animals. But what are they getting uh, to start with in the beginning of their life cycle? Um, they're they're getting small geckos, lizards, you know, frogs. Um, they might happen upon, you know, some little baby birds or something like that, smaller species. Uh, I talked to Nick about this, um, too, early on when I started this work, and I really wanted to talk to, to him and and get some of his experience in the field about, um, how GTP were, you know, what what they're actually feeding on. 
uh, throughout their life cycles. And, and he immediately told me that, you know, these things are not feeding on on mammals. And that, that seems to be the case with, with a lot of neonate species of snakes across the board. It's amazing how many people that are, you know, in the reptile communities view, uh, like, you know, somebody had mentioned, sorry, I'd, I don't know you all well enough or I'm trying to keep the name straight with, yeah. you know, who's talking at what time. But, you know, rodents, you know, you're feeding in, in Australia, you know, a species that's endemic to Australia, uh, a rodent that, you know, and, I, and Nick brought this up too, that, you know, evolved out of Indochina or Mongolia and then worked their way up through the d- domestication process by humans through Europe and, and, you know, they eventually get, across, you know, kicked across seas to where we see the, the fancy rat or the hooded rat, whatever you want to call them. They're basically all descendant from the, the same areas. Um, it is, it's amazing how people think, well, this is what snakes are supposed to eat. And you don't realize how pervasive that is in the community until you say, well, maybe there's another way. Um, but I like to look at what the animals would be feeding on throughout their life cycle and try to replicate those nutritional values. Well, what happens if you don't know what the nutritional values of the prey types that you're feeding? Now, that's where it gets very, very frustrating, right? Um, mm-hmm. Ian, you mentioned also the life cycle of a rodent. I mean, this is tough for me not to talk when you guys are bringing up all these different uh, topics because I want to chime in. Um, there's only a very select uh, life cycle stage for a domesticated rodent where it's nutritionally balanced. And um, we've mentioned D3 and calcium absorption, all this. No one has mentioned calcium to phosphorus ratio, which is essentially, uh, I think, one of you know the most important parts of rep- reptile nutrition. Um, and we don't know what those levels should be exactly for whether they're commonly kept species of reptiles or some of these other ones, uh, you know, that, that aren't so commonly kept. But uh, it's, it's very difficult to decide what that should be. So it's kind of the chicken or the egg. I think what we have done as keepers from the beginning is we say, we don't know what the heck these animals are supposed to eat. So what are we going to do? We're going to offer, offer them a varied diet. So essentially we're covering any spectrum that we may be missing in nutritional value. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting stuff. Uh, if you were to ask me if I fed a varied diet, <laughs> yeah. uh, we do, we do about, I don't know how many different play types we do now, but, um, anything that's less than perfect. Um, I'm a perfectionist quality control right. freak with what we do. Um, we have what we call feed freezers and, you know, these are chest freezers where, um, if there's stuff that doesn't make par to be sold to our customer base, it, you know, boom, where does this go? It goes in the feed freezer, and then it's labeled with the date and what blend it is and all that good stuff. Um, that's all I feed my animals is junk from my feed mm-hmm. freezer. Um, and so uh, that may be rodents. Uh, it's sometimes rodents. It's sometimes uh, a frog quail blend. It's sometimes chicken rabbit. Uh, you know, whatever it is, it could be any combination of, of what we do. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then if you take, you know, a step back 10 years when I started feeding this to my collection, 
um, and, and the breeding stock. Uh, it, it was truly amazing. It blew my mind away, the results that I, that I got so quickly from offering up um, not only a varied diet, but the premise behind what we do is that we are able to take a prey type at a particular life stage cycle and make it in any size suitable for that target animal to feed. And so that's one of the the, the wonderful perks to, uh, you know, a, met- a method like we use encapsulating larger prey, prey items. And Ian, uh, or I can't remember who touched on that, maybe it was Harlan, you're talking about feeding African softwares and how they're a rich meal and they're maybe higher in fat per gram weight and all that. And then you can start mixing and matching um, and you touched on different species of rodents. Um, and that's something that you're forced to, to utilize because um, it turns out that if you, if you really do your own labs on everything, so you have that standard, um, you really don't have a balanced meal with a rat, for instance, uh, unless it's a medium-sized rat. Um, so uh, that's very limiting when you're just feeding rodents. Um, if you take the, the flip side of that, and you can take larger species of animal with better bone structure, um, you know, and jumping back, you're, you're dealing with, you know, small rodents that are mostly fat content. They don't have uh, any bone structure yet. Uh, and then you, you move through that spectrum of that life cycle cycle where you hit that sweet spot but then it goes away super quickly again depending on what your application is depending if that's rebound if you're you're growing an animal up uh you're slimming it down whatever it may be once you get into over you know uh whatever the gram weight would be at a medium-sized rat then you're getting much more into a higher fat content meal and it's not uh nearly as balanced so uh yeah it's really interesting stuff uh I, I truly believe in a varied diet, um, and I can sit here and talk about what I've seen everybody else do, but what I've seen with my own stock and my own collection after roughly 10 years of feeding a little bit of everything is, is been, it's been amazing. So, Huh, that's awesome. Owen, you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm right here. Oh. Oh. Very cool. I mean, the uh, I like the idea of kind of blending it where it's like, you're getting a mouse. Surprise, there's some frog in there, too. So uh, <laughs> I kind of like that idea. Um, and I wish I had a meat grinder. But anyway, um, the... Well, it, uh, would, it would be counterintuitive to grind a mouse for the most yeah. part. Yeah. Because you, I mean, you have, and, and someone had touched upon this before, too, um, the labs that we've done um, suggest strongly that a an adult-sized mouse is, is it doesn't have nearly as much calcium. Um, it's it, it doesn't have as much protein as say uh, a equivalent size or gram weight rat or bigger. But then okay. you're, you're still comparing apples to oranges because what was that rat fed? What was that mouse fed? what's the bone structure, you know, you're talking about maybe a larger animal or something like that. So we found a huge correlation with calcium uh, levels. Um, the larger prey that you break down, obviously the higher the calcium is going to be because you have that natural bone structure. Um, right. And to that, um, if you look at it from that standpoint, absolutely priceless when you're trying to 
um, you know, get these that nutritional uh, value to animals, which is very hard to do with just rodents. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, and I and I like the idea of having like uh, the products available from of different animals, not just rodents. So, so no, no, no. But I still don't vary my diet. I should probably start looking into that. Well, but, you know what? That's the thing too. It's like what works for you. You know, yeah. I, I don't think anybody does that in the in the reptile communities anymore. You get fought so hard if you try to say, you know. It's like I didn't even want to – this is by no means an infomercial. I wanted to say that from the start. Like mm-hmm. I'm here to learn. I'm here to share my experiences. I'm not here at all to market my product or what I do. That's great. It's one of the things I do for a living, you know. I But the thing is, and I talked to Harlan about this too, this method was born out of necessity. It was born out of necessity because I didn't want to spend my paycheck on rats. Uh, right. It was born out of necessity that I no longer wanted to feed my stock just rats or mice, but it 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 wasn't that I didn't want to or I didn't think they weren't nutritionally sound. You have the portion size and the nutritional value correlation right there that you can't get away from. So, um, yeah, I'll shut up now. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I think I think uh, Harlan had something he wanted to add to that, and I think Ian did too. No. No. Ian, yeah. Ian jump did. in, Ian. You're good. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, Buddy actually just posted a couple of pictures over there in the chat room, and I think they're very timely. The one of the <clears throat> looks like two red neos. One's eating a frog, and and one's eating a lizard. And I was just gonna, you know, mention the fact that, you know, I think what Nick hit on is is dead on. These animals are eating a lot of frogs and lizards in the wild, and especially when they're neonates and. Uh, I, I don't know about anybody else out there, but I feel like one of the qualifications for, for breeding these animals is that you've probably put a number of them, especially when they're small, in the freezer at some point or another when you were struggling with figuring out how to get them started or how to get a meeting. Or it seems like there's always a couple that lag in every clutch. And finally, uh, I don't know, it was, it was actually in 2015 I had a clutch, and I had one in particular that was just a real holdout and was trying my patience, so to speak. And uh, I mentioned him earlier, my local buddy here, Eric Chung, he said to me, well, you know, have you tried giving them any lizards? And I said, well, it's really frowned upon, and there's the potential for, for internal parasites and everything else. And and finally I got to that point that I had to make that decision after trying scenting with lizards and both anoles and geckos. We have a lot of them, you know, that are just wild here, evasive in Florida. And, and I finally had to make that decision, would I rather uh, have a, a chondra that ate geckos or would I rather have a chondra that lived in the freezer? And I decided that the vault and the freezer had a big enough collection and I would try live geckos. And it was unbelievable. This thing refused feeding on on every food item I gave it for weeks and weeks and weeks after it hatched. And I put a gecko in there five minutes later, the thing's gone and it ate it. And the gecko was practically bigger than it was. And, and it proceeded to eat probably 20 or 30 geckos you know, on a regular feeding cycle. Every time the rest of the clutch got pinkies and then fuzzies, it it ate a gecko and to the point that I had eliminated all the geckos around my house and all the geckos around Eric's house. (laughs) And we were like hunting neighbors yards at night, trying to come up with geckos. And, um, eventually it switched over to pinks and, and I still have that animal. And, and one of the really interesting things that I found, and, uh, one of the guys out in Colorado, Matt Torner, I think is, is playing around a little bit with this as well with, with feeding lizards and, 
how it may or may not have an effect on the ontogenic color change, but I happen to have kept everything back from this clutch. And it wasn't a very large clutch, but, you know, I think there were maybe a dozen animals in it when they were all established and whatnot. And, and I had this one that was eating geckos, and uh, I, I decided, to, first of all, I'd never sell that one because, A, it ended up with a big scar on its head from, from a gecko bite. And secondly, I, I never want to take a chance of sending an animal out that might have had some issues from, from eating geckos initially. But fast forward two years, because those animals are 2015s, and like I said, I, I held the whole clutch back. And every one of the animals in that clutch has long since gone through its onogenic color change, except for the little gecko eater which of course really? now eats rodents no problem, but that thing is still as yellow as the day it hatched. And every other snake in that clutch is completely green. And um, and I just have to wonder, is it possible that that had any effect on it? Um, it's also smaller than all the other ones, which you know it, it probably didn't get as good a nutrition initially because it took a few weeks until I got frustrated enough with it to even give it a gecko. And so um, you know, m- you might think, well, maybe it's a runt, but the flip side is maybe all the other ones are just really obese and overfed. Exactly. And Bingo. <laughs> maybe they're not supposed to be that big at two years old. And so mm-hmm. I think that's really kind of interesting. And so to see Buddy's pictures that he's um, – I don't know, Buddy, if those are current pictures, if you're currently feeding geckos and frogs to tough feeders or that's uh, something you incorporate into their diets. But I wonder if maybe these animals are supposed to eat more often but less dense prey. You know, I don't know about your guys' chondros, but mine practically beg, and, and they'll beg almost every single night, and the babies caught a lure like crazy, and we all kind of, you know, hear that rule, oh, don't, don't feed them, but every five to seven days, and adults, you shouldn't feed them, but every 14 days, and I just wonder, maybe they're actually in the wild, I'm sure they're hunting every single night, and maybe they just eat a lot more often than we realize, but they're eating much leaner prey. They're eating much smaller, less dense meals. And maybe they're getting a lot more mineral content and less fat and protein in those meals. And I couldn't agree so, with that uh, more. Yeah, so hmm. I just think that maybe there's something there. And again, it's just a, a very, it's one sample. You know, it's not a big sample size. It's not st- statistically significant. But I can't help wonder, like, well, how long is that one going to stay yellow? And and for those of you who are there thinking there's bioc in it, and there's no bioc in that animal. And so all the other ones are completely green, long since gone through their color change, and that one just hasn't even started yet. And I, every time I look in there, I expect it to be green, and I think, gosh, maybe there's a reason that this one's still yellow at this size, and maybe it has something to do with, with starting out on lizards. So, so I think that's just another thing to throw out there. The other thing I was going to mention, and um, – and then I'll toss it over to Harlan for, for more comment. Um, but Eric, you mentioned it earlier. I work in the food industry, and I actually work for a laboratory company. We do a lot of nutritional testing, and we work in feed and food. And before that, I worked in animal feed. And so through work, I have access to something through AZA called the Nutritional Advisory Group. And um, they always talk about all this nutritional stuff. And I posted something on there recently in, ahead of the show, and just kind of threw it out there, does anyone supplement uh, their green tree python diets in captivity? And I got a few responses, but the one that really caught my attention was from a woman who's actually in Australia, and um, she's a veterinarian. And she actually wrote back to me 
and said that they actually go ahead and supplement with vitamin E. And it's not because they see clinical symptoms, but that over time what they have found through uh, animals that have passed on and had uh, post-mortem necropsies done is that the animals are almost always overweight and almost always have large amounts of fat stores in their body. And that would make sense. Captive animals tend to high-fat diet, not a lot of exercise. They have kind of like typical American problems, you know. Um, And uh, and so they actually supplement this extra vitamin E to help combat this high-fat diet. And things that they are concerned about are things like free radicals that can cause damage through the oxidation of the fats. And they actually use an equine supplement, a liquid supplement that's made for horses. And uh, they actually inject this vitamin E into the prey and this is something apparently they do throughout their collection with a lot of their reptiles and specifically with the snakes and the green trees is um, to help combat some of the problems that your body on a long-term chronic basis experiences with with a high-fat diet. And we haven't really talked about it yet, and I, I know we're going to get there with regards to supplementation, but I, I think that potentially one of the other things that we miss is just like with the rodents, when those diets are formulated for a certain reason, I think that Potentially, I think that we're doing our green tree pythons a disservice and probably all of our snakes because I think we generally tend to feed them with the mindset of getting them as big as quick because we can get them reproducing as quickly as possible. Uh, as opposed to saying, you know, what is going to give this animal the most longevity? You know, maybe some of these animals shouldn't be breeding at three or four or five years old, and instead they should be breeding at seven, eight, nine years old because they should be living 20 or 30 years instead of 10 or 12 years. And so maybe what we're actually doing through through improper nutrition or husbandry that could be tweaked or improved or optimized is we're actually cutting their lives short, and as a, a result, they they don't have the reproductive capacity either because they don't have that longevity. They don't have a chance to, to pass those genes on and to have as many offspring. So just some other things to throw out there. Again, more questions and answers from me. That was awesome. Uh, let me click Harlan on. What's the comment? I'm unmuted. Hey, so, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> my, my phone's been giving me a uh, fits with the mute. So I appreciate you guys help on that end. Uh, so, you know, touching base on, on what Ian was talking about, uh, Matt, Matt Turner called me or uh, messaged me and he said, he said, hey, you know, I've got, I've got these snakes that I'm raising up and I have one that's just been a real booger. And, and he said, so I've been feeding it anoles. I mean, I mean, obviously anoles come from a totally different place in the world than green tree pythons do. But, um, you know, a, a live snake is always better than a dead one. You can treat for parasites later, but it's hard to treat the dead one. So, um, so it was good that he was feeding this thing and, and keeping it going. But one thing that he noticed that I thought was really peculiar is he said, Hey, this one held on to a lot of melanistic traits, whereas the others didn't. And he said, do you think that, 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 uh, the difference in diet, uh, caused this change in, in as far as this, the melanism that was present, uh, during that part of the ontogenic color change? And the honest answer is, I don't know. And isn't that a beautiful thing to say? Those three words, I think, are, are a blessing to all of us, because if you say, I don't know, it, it means you have a whole, a whole new uh, uh, realm of territory 
to, to ask questions and, and do some research in. And uh, it was really interesting to have him, you know, bring that forward and to, to take note of that one animal in his collection, just like Ian's talking about the, the yellow one. And so um, in his collection, uh, I'm kind of all over the map here. Uh, when I was talking with Alan Rapeshi, this ties into uh, uh, something that he was, Ian was saying earlier about obesity in these animals, and, and, and Nick mentioned too. And that is, uh, he said, if you look at a, at a, at a photograph of third graders, and he said, uh, when you're looking at the photograph of, of all the class, classmates, do you look at the fattest kid and go, there's the healthy one? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, too often we're, we're in this, we, we pretend we're in this race to try to get something up to size to breed. But in the wild, you know, these are opportunistic animals. They probably don't get the opportunities um, that they're, you know, constantly catered on in, in most captive situations. So we have to take that into consideration. We have to think about prey size and frequency and uh, periods of time when they don't get food. And so, so all of those things play in. Um, you know, uh, there was a paper that I, when we were doing our uh, kind of a chat, chat room discussion earlier, uh, there was a paper that, that I referenced uh, by a, a field researcher, a herpetologist, David Wilson, and he, he did a paper uh, based in, out of Australia, and they were studying uh, a, a lot of different things with green tree pythons, but specifically they studied a lot of the, the diet uh, of neonate wild-caught green trees. And one thing that I found, found that was really interesting was he gave what was predominantly uh, the food items that were found. And there was quite a range, but you know, predominantly they're starting out on, like he said, skinks and geckos and as, as hatchlings, as neonates. And, uh, but they found really wild things in there, like coleopteran and lepidopteran uh, um, parts inside uh, when, when, uh, when they, they did their sampling of, of what the snakes were eating. Uh, you know, coleopterans are beetles. Lepidopterans are either butterflies or moths. And, and this is not stuff that we even think about as being a potential prey atom for a baby green tree python. And some of you may, may remember on Facebook, uh, Mike Schultz posted a picture of, a, a, I think it was a baby, like a corn snake or a king snake that was born uh, deformed. And, uh, and so he took that, that cold animal and offered it to a green tree, which snapped it up and gobbled it down. And, and ophiophagy is mm-hmm. something that's, that we notice in green tree pythons. Um, and so, you know, it just brings the whole, you see the whole picture when you start saying, wow, even insects are, are, are part of the diet. You know, when we, when we talk about feeding something like uh, lizards or birds, um, any prey item, we have to think about the safety of what we're offering too. And so there's some ways that you can kind of circumvent uh, issues and uh, I'll throw I'll throw the skink cubes idea out there and this is where we we uh, maybe I've shared this before but it's where we we take a, a skink that's frozen solid as a rock and we place it in the blender and pour over top of it boiling hot uh, chicken broth and blend the whole thing together so now you've you've both frozen the the, the prey item uh, killing off some parasite loads. And then you've essentially cooked the prey item uh, with the, the scalding chicken broth. And then you blend this whole mess together and pour it in an ice cube tray. And you serve it at your wife's next dinner party. You know, no, you don't do that. Um, mm-hmm. But, but you, you, you take these 
frozen skinky cubes and put them in, a, in your Ziploc bag, and when you need to scent a baby pinky, uh, you, you just pull one ice cube out of the bag, rub it on the pinky, and, and feed it to the snake, and you'd be surprised. It really works, but you're, not, you're, you're circumventing the possible uh, transmission of pathogens, uh, you know, uh, parasites at least, uh, to the snake. So, I, you know, those are all kind of interesting um, things to, to throw out there, and I just thought I would mention them. Yeah. No, definitely very cool, and I like that idea of having the ice cube at the ready because my thing was always you had a frozen chick, and you thawed it out, and then you kind of like rubbed it on the pinky, and then you refroze the chick, and after a while, you could only do that like twice. So right. um, I like you that know, with, idea. With the sausages, the the, the these these reptilinks, uh you know, I, I, I talked with Nick, and I said, hey, you know, the bird content makes me a little leery. And he said, you know, uh, let's, we've, we've come to a, an understanding. We'd like to, to work on another, another idea, and that is um, a cooked and refortified product. And you, you could take the, mm. the, uh, the meat uh, mm. that you're going to put in there, and um, you could cook it and then grind it and then fortify it and then repack it in the casing and offer it to the to the snake when you when you cook something you're doing things on both sides of the fence and uh certain you're going to lose some fat soluble vitamins will be lost in the cook, cooking process uh but you're also going to make some nutrients more available um just the act of of macerating this grinding this meat up you know when for mammals the first stage in digestion is when you're chewing it and so that alone is going to make a lot of those nutrients more available to the, to the predator. The idea of these sausages, a lot of people kind of foo-foo it, but um, those reptilinks, there's there's real less potential and less there. Each day. <laughs> 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 it's you know it's it's uh, I think there's there's really some some valid potential, and and if you uh, if you offer a product like that uh, that's that's cooked and refortified then you're 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 making available again the fat soluble vitamins that you lost during the cooking process mm-hmm. but by cooking it you're also making some things easier for the animal to, to digest and then also by grinding it uh it, again it's it's easier for the animal to digest they it's more efficient they they'll be able to draw more nutritive nutritive value from that prey item and so it would be very fun to test some of this stuff out and that's something that that uh, Nick and I have been in discussion about is, uh, you know, Ian and I want to work on testing some of this, um, these product ideas, and who knows what it could lead to. You know, I'd let I'd let Nick talk more about that, but it's, you know, it's just really in the kind of the primordial stage here, but there's there's real potential to this, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's you know, and, yeah. and you circumvent too, the, uh, it's, sorry, you no, circumvent the possibility of of uh, a lot of the. Uh, the pathogen problems that you know avian avian prey items cause me concern for uh you know f- because there's there's a lot that can be passed from from bird prey items to to snakes and uh but once you cook that well you've got a great pr- protein source there and it's it's very nutritious and then you can refortify it and so i think and it circumvents any of the any kind of concerns that people might have about using bird products and snakes grow great on bird products so, yeah, that would further to the one of the the premises behind the uh, macerated wouldn't be the right term as we mentioned before, but uh, the grinding right. process. You're you're essentially leaving forward in the digestion process, which 
Uh, I hear it time and time again with uh, Condro um, that, you know, the prolapse. And uh, um, I've never had a prolapse with uh, any animals that have been fed links. Uh, We're starting to to sell to many more uh, GTP keepers. And, you know, people report back to me if there's any problems whatsoever. Um, But intuitively, um, when you break down the hair and you homogenize, um, you know, um, and the, the fecal matter, it's not packed in this balloon that's going to bloat in the animal's gut until it penetrates, um, you know, where it can actually start to, gain, you know, synthesize those nutrients, break them down. I mean, that's, that's a very taxing process on a lot of reptiles. I think it just so happens to be extra taxing on some of the, the species like GTP. So um, I wholeheartedly... Uh, think that feeding links is, is easier on snakes in general, um, but it's much more prevalent in some of the, the finer species. Um, the, uh, also, I think it was Ian said, well, you got to feed every seven days or every 14 days or every month. Well, that's completely dependent on uh, the fat content of the diet that you're feeding, you know, how large that animal is. But what about the simple physical composition of what you're feeding, if you can manipulate that? So when you're talking about just the simple fact of breaking down, um, you know, the organism first, uh, the, the, the digestion process is quicker. Uh, green tree pythons, they'll defecate within a week, five days, seven days, ten days. And I, I hear stories all the time of these animals not uh, having a movement for like a month. And so people won't feed them another mouse or a small rat because that's, you know, the balanced meal that you have available to that animal where it's not going to cause problems. Um, But uh, so you can feed more often. What happens when you feed less frequently? You're slowing the metabolic rate of an already sedentary species of snake. Uh, So you're, you're basically hitting it hard from two angles that maybe you shouldn't be. You take and, and, cook uh, this protein source, you're furthering the digestion process. Um, I think it's, I I don't have the background with specific studies of, you know, how cooked meat, what it, what it loses, what it gains. I know there's been research has been done with reptiles that strongly suggest that they do wonderfully on cooked food, which will piss a lot of people off, by the way, uh, when you mention that. Uh, because it's not natural, right? It's not a mouse. Right. It's not a domesticated mouse, and it's not a, a you know a hooded rat. So, whoa, sorry. Oh my goodness. You know, you think the world would end, but you you literally take that what you know this method of grinding, and then you further it with cooking. You you could have a extremely accessible uh, a source of of nutrients for that animal with the least uh, you know cost. It, it's a cost benefit thing. Um, where it's very uh, much less taxing to extract um, those nutrients. And then, of course, the, the, the next logical step, obviously, would be to figure out if you need to fortify, uh, you know, what do you need to uh, put back in and how much of it. But, hey, man, who's done any of that stuff, you know? Uh, right. And, man, you, you will, you'll have people tell you all day, uh, no, that's not natural, that won't work. Well, we're not – and we talk about free-living populations. We, we want to emulate that, and it's more for nutritional values or fat levels, whatever it may be. But we're not keeping these animals in, uh, you know, free-living populations. We're keeping them in captivity 
where we are trying to keep them as you know their life expectancy as long as possible, reproducing for as long as possible. So if we can come up with a method that makes sense, we can prove that on paper, peer-reviewed journal. Somebody, you know, that takes a lot of resources to do do a long-term study on that. I, I want to shut some people up. I mean, that's what keeps me going every day. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of work, uh, Harlan. It's a lot of extra work, but, hey, you know, uh, if we can take things to the next level, I'm I'm all for it. So, awesome, Nick. Good, Ian. So, Nick, I I was just thinking as you were talking about that, and uh, Harlan was mentioning about the data that shows beetles and moths with the types of commercially available insects that are that are you know readily produced now for the reptile industry. Can we utilize some of that type of prey material to not only add potentially some variety to the diet and maybe some other micronutrients, but would that help balance out? Because you, you mentioned earlier that we're not thinking about add the phosphorus. phosphorus ratio and the, the challenges that rodents aren't really balanced. Would, would the insect prey potentially balance that out in a reptilinx kind of scenario? Well, we do make insect blends. Of course, those are strongly geared towards lizards. Um, but yes, any any organic material or um, you know insects, whether they're they're roaches or you know your your regular crickets, um, mealworms, superworms, um, that's all going to increase your phosphorus levels. So um, yeah, that that's going to have drastic effects. I mean, that would that would be an amazing study to do with snakes for sure. I mean, especially if people are documenting. Um, I think it's well known that like colored bird species will feed on, you know, babies, worms or crickets, whatever they can find insects. I mean, cause they have to ingest, they're only able to ingest, you know, what's an appropriate size. So is the animal going to discriminate? Well, if it does, it's going to die in a lot of cases. So that does not surprise me at all. Um, and it might be my anthropological uh, kind of view of everything. I like to look at all, you know, the different components and, and try to kind of get the big picture. Um, but, yeah, that, that that would be amazing to get a higher phosphorus diet to especially, you know, just starting out neonate uh, green tree pythons and, and see what effects that would have on them. So, Is that what, is that what the pinkies are potentially deficient in? Is it that they have more calcium than phosphorus, so the ratio is shifted the other way so that insects can potentially balance it? Well, the calcium levels, unless you're talking, if you're talking about a newly born uh, rodent, you know, most of the calcium it's going to have is is, is from being gut-loaded, you know, from the milk. Um, Other than that, you're talking about pretty much a gelatin blob of fat. Um, And so um, I have to do more labs. They're a pain in the butt. I'm working along with my brother, uh, Tyler, to really hone in on, on the, the, the people that we want to work with to try to get the most consistent results. We have to do more uh, labs on baby rodents, um, but uh, they tend to be high in fat and, and much less in calcium. Um, but, and I was talking to Harlan about this too, everyone focuses on what maybe we shouldn't, be feeding our captive collections. But what if we knew exactly what they were getting from the start in, you know, free living population? Um, and, 
we can talk about you know their how uh, successful they are, you know, reprodu- reproductively, um, how healthy the the offspring are, and everything. I was, but I was kind of taking it even further back and talking to Nick about this, Nick Mutton, and said, "Hey man, can you ship me like ten pounds of, uh, you know, the we call it a yolk, uh, the first meal that a snake is going to ingest as it absorbs before it hatches? Mm-hmm. I want to know what's in that." Because wouldn't that be uh, super revealing? Instead of focusing on what we think we should feed them, I think that would be an excellent, excellent way to say, no, we know what the heck Mother Nature is giving these things right from the get-go. So let's replicate that instead. I like that idea. uh, Nick, I I do have a quick question real quick. I just thought maybe you have some insight on this. Do Do you think that what we feed as babies could possibly affect them later on as adults. So maybe some of the, yeah. Hmm. And well, how do you mean as far as nutritional value or, well, just overall health. I mean, is, is Hmm. maybe some of the problems we're seeing since, you know, we've talked about that, you know, green trees aren't necessarily eating, you know, uh, pinky rodents, uh, in, in the Mm -hmm. wild. So are they, missing something nutritionally so that, you know, what, as they uh, age into maturity, that they may be missing something or somehow that affects them later in life uh, down the line. Yeah. I mean, I could only speculate the long term of, you know, from what you start them on, but I tend to look at an animal's stool um, and, you know, we're all reptile people. If you're not talking about poo, then we haven't touched on what we need to. <laughs> um, you feed a pinky, uh, okay, or any hairless rodent at the beginning of its life cycle to an animal, a reptile, green tree, python, whatever it is, at the beginning of its life cycle, and you essentially get a, a diarrhea stain on your substrate. Uh, you get like a, a poop pancake, and it's it's black. I mean, it even looks like what you'd get from a newborn baby. Uh, when you, you know, it's getting this super like dense uh, uh, meal, but you feed it something that's more mature and, and people don't have that option, right? Unless they're crazy enough to do what we do. Um, and that is to break down a larger prey item with, you know, a little bit of hair or a lot of hair, um, uh, more dense bone structure and everything. But encapsulate it into a portion size that's easily ingestible for that animal. Well, what I found happens is that you get a, a, a turd for, you know, lack of a better term that looks exactly like what you'd feed an adult animal. Um, you don't have all that extra, you know, it just doesn't look healthy. Um, but if you, if you feed something that, that is more mature, essentially, you're going to get a better stool and it's smaller too. And what I found per gram weight, um, when you're feeding, you know, say there's minis or micros that we make for something larger, like the eight to 12 gram, um, they're more nutritionally dense, um, nearly twice because of the nature of the product. It's, it's ground up. So it's packed down into a really small, um, you know, sample size. Um, but it essentially has more nutrients in it. Um, and so, what I found very early on, I'm talking like nine years ago, is that you can feed uh, pinkies 
um, and you you'll get a plumper baby snake, um, but you won't get a larger, leaner, more active, uh, stronger, like more muscle tone. Like you can tell when they grip on your finger immediately between an animal that's had that uh, access to, you know, that broken down larger prey source than just a, a lump of fat, essentially. So that that to me was, you know, that was very revealing. So, uh, but to answer your question, um, I think, yeah, when when you start them out, that's, that is absolute key because that's going to set the tone for the rest of that animal's uh, life cycle. Right, right. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. And I don't know who wants to chime in on this one, but we did have a uh, uh, a question that came in from Luke Myers. And um, I guess uh, as of recently, he may have been breeding uh, captive bred uh, crested geckos. And what about the idea of using those as feed? And how come oh people my- don't? God. <laughs> All right. Well, there's well. my answer. <laughs> I was I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting the using the crested geckos as food. I was uh, yeah. I thought we were going to go a different direction. But I'm sorry. Continue. So. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if anybody wants to chime in on that. Why? I mean, buddy to, had to posted feed up. crested geckos to to snakes. Yes, to chondros, yes. In particular, chondros. Oh, I mean, me, myself, from what I've seen, uh, lower fat um, uh, meal, uh, you're probably looking at, uh, I have to, we have to do more labs on this, but you're probably looking at like 3 to 5% fat as opposed to, you know, significantly higher with with any rodent. I, they They would probably do very well on them. Um, I get asked every day if we can make products out of snakes, in particular for cobras. Um, Blackheads, mm, yeah. Obviously, they're you know they're going to be specializing specializing on those. Um, and then, oh, can you can you offer a gecko product? Can you offer anoles and you know all this stuff? And um, the closest thing I came to was maybe um, sourcing you know feral green iguanas or something like that, but. Like Harlan said, I mean, you have to be super careful what you're actually using. Um, but from what I've seen, and, and you guys have a lot more experience keeping uh, GTP in particular, um, I, I think they would do amazing on a leaner diet like that. And as Ian mentioned before, their growth uh, rates probably won't be as high. But uh, in the long term, you're looking at possibly a long, uh, you know, a leaner uh, stronger animal with a uh, much higher life expectancy. That would, from what I've messed with for the past 10 years, everything I've seen within my own collection, I bet those animals would live uh, significantly longer than uh, rodent-fed animals. Hmm. Interesting. Well, there we go. It's very okay. cool. Yeah. Never, I would never expect that. Um, I, I guess, what is it, Ian was just saying uh, alligator meat as a potential for something. I guess maybe uh, would that ever be something you would consider, uh, Nick, as some uh, viable option? Uh, they are my favorite reptile. I don't know if I have the heart <laughs> to do that. I can't, can't do it. All right. 
All right. <laughs> now, it could be. Um, I, I think, you know, it all depends on the size of the animal, too, and you have to source this stuff consistently. Um, right. I think if you use smaller animals, there could be a lot of applications for it. Obviously, as as that animal ages, uh, you know, alligator being the prey source, they're going to be higher in fat content. And then, of course, are you using the whole animal? Um, then you have, um, you know, parasite issues and, and different risks with that. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that could potentially be a very lean, um, you know, prey source and, and protein source for quite a few, you know, especially uh, reptile specialist species. So, cool. Yeah, Nick, I was awesome. just thinking, you know, being here in Florida, living in the south, we've got lots of alligators and, mm-hmm. you know, people eat alligator meat all the time. I know it's it's something that's commercially raised in, you know, just Gulf the tail, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I was just thinking if you're thinking in terms of, you know, a substitute for a protein source that's reptilian, I don't know how it compares to snake meat or gecko meat or anole meat, but it's the only thing I can think of that would be commercially available, although maybe iguana, because not just ferals, but they are raised commercially in Mm -hmm. Central and South America. I don't know what the difference in the nutritional profile would be, though. Yeah, and and that's definitely something I want to look into in the very near future. The closest that we've gotten right now is using frog. Um, So... Um, that's that's about as closely as we can replicate for a lot of this, you know, reptile or amphibian specialist species. I'm curious, Nick, real quick, and then we'll I guess we'll move on if nobody has anything else. But I'm curious, um, do you have any uh, GT, uh, chondro people using reptilinks, and what is their feedback, well, especially as offspring? Definitely. I mean, as babies. Yeah, yeah, well, we're just getting into that. This is the the first or, or second year that people are starting out the the babies on uh, on the product that we make. Um, I can't, I don't have specific results on how the babies are doing, um, but I I've had people for maybe four years now that are feeding reptilinks, um, and and they're they haven't switched back. Um, they haven't switched back to rodents. Um, I've gotten no negative feedback, no reports of prolapse or anything like that. Um, and that, that falls in line with what I've seen in my private collection. Um, and they seem to digest them uh, very easily. And they, they also readily take them too, uh, which, is, which is a pretty nice feature. But uh, that would be pending. And and that's, you know, we're just getting, like Harlan said, we're getting to the, you know, very beginning stages of this. But I really look forward uh, to more people um, reporting back of the results. And it would be great to start quantifying some of this stuff. But, uh, but yeah, um, there are several, several people that are feeding uh, links and only links to GTP. And, and they're having amazing results so far. So, huh. I mean, unless you're the the chondro neonate whisperer like Buddy is, you you know sometimes they can be hard to get going. Um, yeah, well, that, that we did make the frog scent for that, um, which mm-hmm. we've had really good results with GTP. I don't think it's anything compared to, uh, you know, like the hog nose. I mean, I've probably saved fifty of those things in the past two months. 
um, you know, just because oh, wow. they are a toad or amphibian specialist species. And it's it's insane how many people don't know that, that buy them. It's probably quite a, a different demographic of people compared to, you know, those that are acquiring uh, chondro. But, um, but yeah, they it, it does work with uh, Morelia, too. I mean, I, I do a lot of pure jungle. That's what I originally started working with many years ago with, um, the carpet pythons and then you know i just recently started producing jags and you know i did some projects with bill there and and uh i did find that even uh you know jags or pure jungle um they they react very strongly to frog scent which i was super happy to see as well so that that's something that that's been very successful with quite a few different species now really interesting okay Ian wanted to jump in one more time. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you, Nick was talking about before with that uh, the difference in terms of digestion for uh, product that had been cooked or um, even product that had been homogenized and blended. And I just thought something interesting that I all of a sudden remember from years ago, uh, again, when I was living in Gainesville, I used to have the opportunity to go out to the Gourmet Rodent a lot and... Um, the guys out there, Mike Lehman and Joe Hyduke and Bill Brandt, you know, they were always looking at, at new things and how to optimize things. And the thing that was so cool, like Harlan mentioned before, is they had really large sample size because they worked with large numbers of animals. Their, their colonies were very large. And I remember back in that day, I was breeding a lot of colubrids and small boas, and I really felt strongly about feeding live um, versus frozen. And... I remember talking to some of the guys out there, I think it was Joe Hyduke, and he told me that they had they had done some side-by-side comparisons and that they found that they actually got better growth rate out of the animals that they fed frozen thawed versus live and that just that freezing process and then thawing out again, uh, just like Harlan or Nick, I'm not sure who was saying it, you know, digestion starts as soon as the enzymes in your mouth and your saliva hit that food item and that just that freezing process and thawing it back out actually aided in the digestion or that was the, the theory what led to the, the higher growth rate so that those nutrients were more easily absorbed and digested and made bioavailable to the body. And so, uh, you know, maybe that next step is the, the homogenization and the cooking in terms of aiding in the digestion. And so, um, so just kind of an interesting tidbit that maybe kind of dovetails into what, what you were talking about, Nick. I thought I would share that. Um, the other day, yeah, I, just that's to... I haven't thought of that aspect too much, actually. That's pretty interesting. Um, definitely. Yeah, I mean, imagine you compound the freezing because I imagine the reptilinks potentially are frozen. I don't know if they're refrigerated or frozen, but if you had, you know, even the raw materials are frozen, then thawed, and then you homogenize, and then you cook. You're denaturing mm-hmm. the proteins. You're you're essentially accelerating the digestive process by doing some of that work ahead of time. So, um, mm-hmm. so just might be kind of interesting to look at what that does or maybe do some side-by-side comparisons. Com- yeah, um, compare the composition of the tissues fresh and then just simply frozen. Yep, yep. yep. The the other thing I was going to mention is that, um, and, and, and I know Harlan and I have talked about this, but uh, Alan Rapashi was talking to us about the fact that he actually had been corresponding with Rico years ago, and and Alan was able to dig up some old correspondence for us, actually, and it's almost like being able to talk to Rico from the grave a little bit. It it, it gives me goosebumps almost, but he was able to dig up some some correspondence where they were actually talking back and forth about 
supplementation with regards to looking at the calcium to magnesium ratio. I know we were talking a lot about calcium to phosphorus, but apparently Mm -hmm. the magnesium and, and I know some of the other micronutrients like selenium and manganese and strontium also have big roles in in the way that calcium is absorbed and and made available in the body. But it sounds like this was back in 2010, I think, and and Harlan maybe can correct me if I'm not getting the dates right, but that that far back that Rico was actually working with Alan looking at manipulating the calcium-magnesium ratios in, uh, I think it was pinkies, uh, to try to address some things that he was seeing that he thought or, or was attributing potentially to deficiency or imbalance in the diet. And so I wonder as we start to to look at nutrition more carefully with these animals that maybe that that's another area that we have to look at. What are, what are the micronutrient requirements or what are some of the things that the diets might be deficient in from a micronutrient standpoint? Um, and then mm-hmm. one last thing before we fo- we close up on nutrition and move on. I mentioned earlier that I fed African sufferers this past year and um, I'm just going to put it out there to the, the whole GTP community. I can't find those things. My local rodent person that I was getting them from live and sometimes frozen is kind of downsized her colony. And I know that um, some other folks have bred them in the past, but just thought I would throw it out there. If anyone's got a really good source for them, especially frozen. You're talking um, to them. Yeah, hit me up. <laughs> it, it's hard to find them. I'll tell you, those things, uh, people have them, and then you contact them, and they're sold out. So, uh, send me a PM mm-hmm. if you've got a good source for them, because I'd love to add some to the freezer. You can just go to the website, buddy. We got them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. I'm going there now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, they're mean little right. things, though. I can't stand how you can't move quick around them. Otherwise, they, they're they like the, the rabbit in the Holy Grail that, like, swings across on, oh, the, on the fishing wire there. Oh, man, those things. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, apparently there's some restrictions on where you can breed them. Like I think in Georgia it's illegal to breed them, and so mm-hmm. it seems like their availability is, is somewhat spotty at best. So um, maybe you should promote the fact that you got them, especially the GTP guys, because I can tell you I've been looking for some because I don't have many left in the freezer, and I'd like to have some for, for this season. So uh, I'll, I'll touch base with you. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was interesting uh, when I when I spoke with uh, – with Alan uh, Rapeshi, uh, I think it was what yesterday we were talking, and he was saying uh, something very similar to what Nick said about pinkies being, you know, it's like a like a butterball, and uh, calcium-wise, you know, they they're pretty deficient as far as calcium goes, but you know they're high in fat, and um, some of that's good and some of that's not so great, but but um, you know when I'm feeding pinkies out, I always try to find the pinky that has the milk belly especially if they're, you know, only a few hours old. And my, my thought process is, and maybe this is not something that reptiles can utilize at all, I, I don't know, but my thought process is that uh, that first milk has colostrum in it uh, in mammals. And if that pinky's frozen before he gets a chance to utilize that, you, you've definitely, you're going to have more calcium in the milk than probably in the rest of the, the pinky. It's, it's uh, you know, its body hasn't formed real bones yet. Um, so, so having the milk belly is going to give you some of the calcium and then perhaps that colostrum can be passed on as well. You know, um, it, it, it was interesting talking with Alan. Uh, one of the things he said was, you know, so many of, so many things that, 
both Rico, Rico and Vladimir were really good friends, and they had compiled tons of data. Rico, uh, Vladimir had planned to write a book. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as fate would have it, he passed before that got done. And so him and, and, and Rico both, uh, they had a vast amounts of knowledge that, that, uh, that we don't have now. And he said, you know, someone has to pick up the torch. And what rang to me when he said that was, it's not someone that needs to pick up the torch. It's everyone needs to pick up the torch. We all need to, to work together and share this information, and that's why a, a radio program like this, it, it reach, reaches such a broad audience, and it brings us all together to be able to, uh, to, to maybe come up with some of these answers. You're talking about years uh, of research, and, um, you know, uh, Ian and I are kind of playing with it uh, right now. Um, you know, we, when we talked about... Uh, uh, the, the teeth shedding of teeth, and uh, and and how that relates to prolapse. Um, it was really interesting uh, how how that the path has taken us. And I'd like to let Ian kind of take that and and run with it. He'll tell this story great. Cause, uh, it's fun. Anyway, <laughs> good, Ian. <laughs> I, I knew I knew at some point uh, Harlan would ask me to tell the shitty story, so I will tell the <laughs> shitty story and I will share the shitty pictures. Um, so, you know, this all kind of goes back, uh, like Harlan was saying, to something that Vladimir was working on, and there is a um, – I can't remember whose website it's on, um, but I've got a link here and I'll, I'll post it in the, the chat room, but – there's this uh, this written interview, or I guess it's like a transcribed interview with Vladimir um, when he was still running the farm, and uh, he talks. One of the things he talks about is um, the shedding of teeth in neonate chondros and the possibility that that might be related to the high incident that is sometimes seen of prolapses in neonate chondros. And Vladimir had a theory that um, that the, the shed teeth in the neonates was, was linked to the prolapses and that it was actually related to a nutritional deficiency that was tied back to the females before they even produced or, or laid the eggs for that clutch. And that um, if you supplemented the females, that the, uh, the neonate, the eggs, and then the neonates got whatever it was that they were missing, and, and that prevented them having this excessive amount of teeth shed that, that could potentially lead to prolapse. And so, I don't know, fast forward uh, quite a while, and I was cleaning snake cages, uh, I don't know, this is a couple months ago now, and I was going through my normal routine of, of cleaning cages, and it was right around the time that some of my males were just coming back onto feed. And my season is a little bit different time-wise than I think some of the rest of the country because I'm so far south. I'm like subtropical uh, being in South Florida and we don't really get necessarily the same kind of winter weather that the rest of the country does. And I know you guys are crying for me on that. But um, so I was cleaning cages and I had a couple of males that had just come back onto feed. And when I say they were fasting during breeding season, they these particular males fasted for between four and five months at a time. And I'm going through and I'm cleaning cages and all of a sudden I came to one particular cage and it had um, a very noticeable turd in it 
buddy, I know you like that that terminology, and um, mm-hmm. and it had a lot of teeth in the the fecal matter. I thought, well, that's that's kind of unusual. That's kind of interesting, and so I went ahead and took a picture of it and thought, like, oh, I'm gonna send my friend Harlan a shitty picture because he'll think that's funny, and um, took a picture of it and, and kept cleaning cages and threw it in the garbage, of course, and. I don't know, a few cages later, I came to another male that had just also had a, you know, had just come off of fasting. And so I went ahead and um, that one also had a bunch of teeth in the the fecal matter. And I thought, well, it's kind of coincidental. Two animals, they both have teeth in the fecal matter. Um, they both are males that just came off of fasting for a long period of time. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. And so I took another picture and I thought, you know, my friend Harlan will think this is funny and I'll send him two shitty pictures. And, um, so I sent him the pictures when I got done cleaning that day and, you know, several hours of cleaning. And, um, I'm going to start posting some of these pictures in the group chat there so you guys can see them. And, uh, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm telling Harlan like, Oh, you know, what'd you think of those shitty pictures I sent you? You know, and I'm thinking it's so funny and I'm clever and everything. He goes, that, that's really interesting stuff. And he says, um, so how many teeth were there? I said, I don't know, a lot. He goes, well, what do you mean you don't know? Like, how many were there? You counted them, right? And I'm thinking, like, man, what do you mean, like, I counted them? They were, they were in all the, you know, in the fecal matter. And um, he goes, well, that's the most important part of the whole story, man. He's like, how many teeth were, were there? I said, well, I'm just going to tell you there were a lot. And he goes, no, you got, you got to tell me how many teeth there were. And I said, well, I don't know. I threw them away. And he's like, what do you mean you threw them away? And he starts telling me, and uh, I forget, some viper or some snake that he had worked with years ago that he wanted to collect the fangs from the fecal matter. And he told me how he took the, the fecal matter and he soaked it in bleach and he was able to recover the fangs. And um, as he's telling me all this and he's giving me a hard time about not knowing how many teeth there were, I, um, I'm staring at the trash bag that's now completely full from a whole day's cleaning the snake room that I haven't taken out yet. And, and I'm just thinking, man, I know that I know it's in there and I use newspaper in my cages. So I always roll up the newspaper like a burrito when I throw it away. And, uh, he's really egging me on. And so finally I'm like, all right, fine, Harlan. And I put the gloves on and I start digging through the trash and, um, and I start finding the right clump of newspaper until I find those two particular turds and then I took those two turds and I put them in separately labeled deli cups and I soaked them in bleach for several days and then I started picking teeth out of them and it was pretty darn amazing how many teeth there were and and not just how many teeth there were but the different size teeth and the different shape teeth and um and, and it actually became so many teeth that I couldn't even count them like there were just so many were, of them. were the teeth encapsulated in hair as well Mm-hmm. Um, there was some hair in the fecal matter, but if you look at the pictures, I mean, some of the teeth were just sticking out of the, the fecal matter. I mean, there were just, okay. there were that many of them. And, and I just couldn't believe quite frankly, when I got done picking them out with tweezers, how many teeth there actually were. I mean, it was, it was a large amount and you see the pictures they're posted on the, the group chat right now. I mean, you can see each of those big deli cups was one animal's fecal matter and each of those little tiny cups was after I got done with tweezers, 
painstakingly picking every tooth and some of them were brittle at that point and they crushed or, or cracked and some of the really small ones were difficult to even recover and so I'm sure there was five or ten percent that I, I missed that I didn't even get but you can see there's a lot of teeth in those pictures and so then Harlan and I had a, another conversation about it and we start theorizing and discussing you know well, do you think that because the animals were fasting for so long that they were deficient and so they were shedding an excessive number of teeth because of this prolonged fasting period and, and maybe it's just really hard on the male's bodies and, and certainly we see that in some males that, that fast, they don't recover quickly or some of them even perish during breeding season and, and the breeding can be just as hard on the males as the females. But then we also theorize, well, you know, maybe it's just a normal rate of tooth loss, but there was no mode of transportation through the snake's GI system. And so those teeth were just hanging out, waiting to hitch a ride. And when those snakes finally started eating again, it sort of flushed them all out at one time. And so, of course, with more questions and no answers meant that we needed to collect more data. And collecting more data meant we needed more turds. And so um, there's another picture, Eric, that, that I sent you. I think you can post it where uh, I've started collecting a lot more samples and I've probably got about 20 or so turds soaking in bleach in the garage as we speak. And um, I've visually seen some teeth in them before I even started soaking them, but it'll be really interesting to see, you know, does there appear to be a normal rate of tooth loss? We know that these animals obviously are shedding teeth normally, but is it more excessive in adults versus juveniles? Is it more excessive in males versus females? Um, you know, what what does normal tooth loss look like? Uh, we, d we just don't really know. And then maybe it's related to nutrition. So if we start to supplement with whether it's um, – you know, something with more with a more appropriate calcium phosphorus ratio or a higher level of magnesium, maybe we affect tooth loss or, or we reduce tooth loss. Maybe that's an indicator we can use. We don't have a lot of indicators. Maybe that's one that we could use as a judge of of health or nutrition or something of that regard. And you know, I, I reached out to to Brad Waffa because I know he's done some work looking at teeth. And one of the questions I had, well, how many teeth are in a normal set of teeth for a green tree python? And Apparently, that's not really a question you can answer because they're they're almost like sharks. They're constantly losing and regenerating teeth, and so there's not, per se, a normal number. You don't have a finite set of teeth. Um, and he said that some of the work that he's done was more involved, uh, involving animals that had lost all of their teeth. You know, so they lost all of them at one time and didn't regenerate any. And these two particular yeah. animals in the in the first group of of herds I processed. Um, had obviously lost teeth while they were fasting or at some point along the way, and um, but they still had teeth. So it doesn't appear that it was something that dramatic or that drastic, but it really was, was a little bit of an eye-opener to me because I would have never imagined that an animal could pass that many teeth at one time. And uh, so now the question really is, <clears throat> could that potentially be uh, the indicator with regards to nutrition? Could that be connected to the prolapse that we see in juveniles and so maybe it's it is still connected to nutrition but maybe from the, the parents or the, the mother um you know i know that there's a lot of thoughts about prolapse being associated with dehydration or proper or improper hydration um or feeding too large a prey item or too heavy or too much food and too too much frequency too so i think it's um yeah i think it's just another piece of that puzzle this whole teeth thing and so um 
So now Harlan's collecting samples as well, and we're going to start to compare notes. And I think it's another opportunity to sort of make an appeal to the, the GTP community, the Condra world, to say, are you guys seeing teeth and turds in, in your collections? Maybe some other folks will decide that they want to stick some turds in bleach and count some teeth and see what their data looks like. And then we can maybe compare a little bit and get a better idea what's normal uh, and what's not. And then if we know that something is obviously a problem, then can we, can we address that through nutrition? Maybe it's, maybe it's nutrition and um, hydration and UV light. Maybe it's a combination of things. Maybe we need better quality water more readily available. Maybe we need better quality light with more UV, and maybe we need to, to tweak the nutrition. And I have a feeling it's going to be a more complex answer, something along the lines of that, where, where there's a lot of different things that are interconnected and playing off of one another. But this is sort of just the beginning, and this is something that, again, started as just an anecdotal observation and, um, and now has turned into sort of a science project gone, gone wrong. And, um, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. It's, uh, the, the jury is still out. I, I definitely don't have any answers on that one. I think it's just an interesting question. We'll have to see where it goes. And Harlan, feel free to fill in anything I left out. I know it's a shitty story, but someone's got to tell it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I see what you did there. So, <laughs> Oh, awesome. Yeah, well, you know, Turd Diggler, he tells the story pretty well. And, um, you know, it was really fun uh, having him uh, when he's like, you want me to do what? D- dig through that trash can? Uh, but, you know, the thing is. You're sick. Um, You're sick man. Yeah, sick man. <laughs> it was funny. We, we were talking. He's like, well, well, are you getting samples? And my kids always love to help, you know, in the snake room. And uh, so Ian and I were talking. I said, you know, well. Um, I got I got the new guy in the room. So guess who gets to cl- collect? My son's like, you want me to put put what my hand? He's like, Dad, look, I, I, he's he's got it all, a system. He's like, I can put my hand in the plastic bag, and then I kind of squish it together. See, it makes like a glove. Now I can grab it without it getting dirty at all. And then I just turn the bag inside out, and I got I got the turd inside the bag, Dad. And I'm like, you're a pro. You're a pro. You're moving right along. You're moving up there. You know, pretty soon you'll graduate, and your brother can collect turds. You know, but, <laughs> but <laughs> no, but it's you know it's it's fun. But you know, when collecting information like this, we need to be conscious of when was the, the last time the animal fed, what was the frequency, and this is what we were going back to with record keeping. What's the frequency with which you're feeding? Does does the the ecdysis cycle, the the shed cycle, play in there in in some way? Are we shedding uh, when we're shedding our skin? Are we shedding more teeth as well? I mean, all of this stuff plays together, and so, um, you know, when you start collecting data like this, the more data, the better. The more uh, scientific approach that you can take, the better. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, that that's, I know we're running short on time here, uh, but, you know, that kind of uh, sums up a little bit about our, our, uh, our poop talk. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, awesome. And I... And I know we wanted to uh, make sure we gave you guys enough time to throw out your uh, businesses and everything like that. So uh, I guess we'll start with that. (laughs) Um, uh, I think we were going to start with Harlan, if you want to throw out uh, business, website, contact info, what you got going on this season, all that fun stuff. Awesome. Well, um, I'm working on a lot of different green tree python projects 
I do a lot of collaborative work. Uh, uh, people like to call them reading loans, but we, we do a lot of collaborations with people um, working to try to make really nice chondros. Um, and I'm also working on a, a, an interesting project in Amazon tree boas, the mango uh, project. I, I recently purchased uh, the last of that. There are, I think, two guys really in the United States that have uh, myself and another gentleman, Charles Catrice, that are working with the mango line uh, now acquired from, from Billy Leonard. So that's kind of a fun thing aside from the, the green trees and emeralds that I'm doing. The name of my business is Wall to Wall Reptiles, and uh, you can find me under Harlan Wall um, on Facebook. And generally, once I make friends with someone on Facebook, phone is usually the best way to contact me. And uh, But, you know, messaging works too. So, so that, that pretty much sums that up for you. Cool. All right. Um... Thanks. Yeah, who's uh, who's next in here on the the list there, Eric? Who'd you don't you have go? the list. Oh my gosh! I I had it, buddy. Buddy's next on the list. So, um, I'm everywhere, <laughs> <laughs> and all and nowhere all at once. All right, well that's terrifying. exactly yeah so, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find me at ttpkeeper.com or on Facebook at ttpkeeper. And, and you'll find me at Carpet Fest. Uh, yes. I don't know whenever that's coming up, June or something, right? June. Yeah. And anything special you got cooking this season? Uh, just chondros. No rhinos this year. Uh, all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait for more rhinos. So that's. Awesome. Oh, I've got plenty. So you let me know if you want any. I will see you later. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll deal with that later. So, all right. Uh, Thank you, buddy. And uh, Ian, why don't you throw your stuff out there? Yeah, sure. Uh, S&J Reptiles, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, www.sjreptiles.com. We're pretty readily available on social media. And... um, as far as projects this year, a uh, number of chondro pairings, some locality pairings, some outcrosses. My season, like I said, tends to be later in the year, so I'm not quite sure yet what I'm going to have, but I do have a couple girls that are off of feed looking kind of plump, so um, that's a good sign. And probably the one I'm most excited about is I'm hoping to get some fertile eggs out of Bertha the Bioc this year. And... Um, that's a, a roughly 20-year-old animal that uh, is on lo- breeding loan here from Robert Weishart, and um, she's a pretty unique-looking biak if you've ever seen her, and uh, she's been breeding up a storm, so I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that maybe we get something out of her this year. But we've got a number of pairings planned, and uh, stay tuned. Our season's later in the year, so uh, we'll be posting when we have more information. Very cool. All right, uh, and Nick? Uh, you want to throw your contact info and your stuff out there? Sure, yeah. It's uh, Nick and Tyler Hebley. We run Reptilinks. It's R-E-P-T-I-L-I-N-K-S, uh, reptilinks.com. Uh, we offer whole prey, obviously, and, and alternative uh, feeding methods. Uh, as far as pairings and things I'm working on, I have a little bit of everything going on. I had a really late season. Uh, part of that, I guess, had to do with weather and, and being so busy with other projects. But uh, 
I got some of the best uh, Jags that are going to be out there. Quite a few pure uh, jungle lines. I started actually with with Will a long time ago. Acquired many animals from him along with Andrew. So I've essentially line bred those for for many years. And um, so I'll have some really nice pure jungles. Uh, of course, I do bat eaters. All kinds of uh, the only color breads I I breed are are actually Mexican black king. So I just like to produce a handful of those each season. So little little bit of everything. Awesome. awesome. Very cool. And uh, Eric, if you want to throw out your contact information and what you got going on there. I'm everywhere as well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for that. But anyways, uh, this has been a really, really, really good show, in my opinion, uh, when it comes to information that was given as well as all the questions that will now be arising, like all the questions that now we will definitely be having. Uh, so it's been a great show and thank you guys for coming on and making it such a success. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. the opportunity. It was nice talking with all you guys. Very cool. So thanks for having us. So very cool. So let's, um, Eric, if you want to do your shtick, I'll do my shtick, and then we'll close this out. And then we're going to have to have everybody back for a second Condra roundtable because we got through like half the stuff we wanted to get through. So we still got <laughs> enough for a whole nother show. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only two things that I got coming up, uh, the main thing I want to say is, well, first we got to give a shout out to a Rue Condro fan. Uh, go check out, uh, I think it's a RueCondroFan.com. They are a, they are a, um, uh, a shit. <laughs> no, my God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they sponsor GTP Keeper Radio. Um, oh. so, uh, okay. we know those guys. He, he, uh, Heath is his name. Uh, Ian had mentioned him earlier, but, uh, I told him I'd give him a shout out. The other thing I got the carpet fest coming up right around the corner, Southern carpet fest. Uh, it's, uh, going to be an awesome time. Uh, there'll be a, a lot of people there that, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing. So if you're down in the Arlington, Texas area, uh, you should definitely come on by contact bill for more information or, um, Evan, Evan Browder or Bill Stiegel, uh, either one, uh, and they'll be able to give you uh, more details. But, uh, yeah, we're, what, a couple weeks away? Yeah, and I'm one of those people that you're looking forward to seeing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Your silence concerns me. It's <laughs> <laughs> enough out of this. Yeah. I get it. All right, move on. <laughs> so, um, and then we have our Carpet Fest in June. Yeah, June 3rd is uh, yep. the Northeast Carpet Fest. Uh, so if you can't make it to the Southern Carpet Fest and you want to come up to, to uh, and you're on the East Coast, maybe the Northeast is the better option. Uh, that will be June 3rd. Um, you know, right after the Southern Carpet Fest, we'll promote the uh, Northeast yeah. uh, all that much more. But we'll have our uh, it's a good time. There's going to be a lot of Condro people down at the uh, Southern Carpet Fest, um, you know, um, but there's also other other types of reptile uh, 
uh, keepers and such there. So um, I just found it to be uh, an awesome time with some awesome people. So cool. Cool. So I guess that's all you got. So my turn. Your turn. Sweet. All right. So you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. You can also check out Rogue Reptiles on Facebook. Uh, upcoming shows, I will be vending the Hamburg Reptile Show, which is not this Saturday, but next Saturday. And then I will also be attending the White Plains Reptile Show in White Plains, New York, which will be the Sunday after. So it's kind of like a double header. So uh, I won't be vending White Plains, but I will be attending. So if you want me to bring anything, let me know. Now's the time. And we're waiting on eggs over here, and that's all I got. And that's all we have for you, everybody, tonight. So what we will say is thank you all for tuning in, and we're going to catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night. <laughs>